0: This is Leaked Lunch of Isabella Kaminska, the the fly-on-the-wall podcast that brings you to the dining table. In this week's episode, I sit down with Helen Thomas, a former advisor to Chancellor George Osborne, who now heads the investment advisory firm, Blonde Money. We discuss the growing political risk in your portfolio, the importance of understanding gamma exposure, and why the ETF story still hasn't been properly told. This week's episode was recorded on July 4th, just before Boris Johnson stepped down as UK Prime Minister. Our lunch was at Asian fusion restaurant Ailu in Paddington, and the bill came to £168.19. For more on what happens when finance and media intersect with reality, check out The Blindspot at www.the-blindspot.com. I'm, yes. I'm, I, this is the second episode of Leaked Lunch, so you are the, the first episode to be properly consciously recorded, <laughs> <laughs> yes, at least in theory, oh the other one was as well, it ended up being a publicity stunt, um, we were no, pretending, it pretending it was Pocket Dial, but we are in, I guess Paddington, in yes. one of these new, um, it's called, I don't know how you pronounce it, mean, I don't know it. how you pronounce it. Ilu. A- I a y l u a y l u. A- y- l u. And it is a fusion restaurant. Um, welcome to yeah. So we are here because it's okay to say that you were nearby. <laughs> yes. And um, so this is mutually convenient. Yes. And actually, Paddington is very good for me as well. Oh, good. I'm in Ealing, so. Oh, nice. Um, oh, glad it worked for you. So and then yeah, so it's a fusion fusion restaurant with I guess
1: Peruvian. Yeah. Well how do you say it? Is it ceviche or ceviche? ceviche I never know how you say ceviche it. Ceviche maybe. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't bet my life on it. <laughs> well it's but, got that and I'm seeing you know, Nigerian sashimi, so yes, Japan. Japan's Japan Peru, happening. And might I just say a massive menu, which I like. Yes. There's lots of options.
0: I wonder how these prices will fare in about six months' time. <laughs> yes. I was at a um, at our local Japanese restaurant and the Ikura was off the menu because it was already too oh, expensive really? to source. really?
1: Well, I'm not surprised. Yes, I'm not surprised they haven't started, you know, crossing things out on this menu. That will happen, I'm sure. Uh, hello. Do you have about the menu? Well, we probably need some recommendations maybe. Yeah, and also, is it sort of sharing? So yes, so if you have a look, the menu is kind
0: of split into two.
2: Yeah. So above the meat, poultry, fish and the oramakis, so everything in this first section,
1: yeah. it's kind of small plates, taco style. Uh-huh. And everything at the bottom are the
2: bigger
0: plates. Okay. okay. So-, so should we get the, um, the mixed ceviche, yeah, ceviche and the trio of tacos? Do you want uh, a small trio of tacos? Yes. Is that is that enough for sharing? Yeah. We need more. Or do we need more? So that's a, like, is that one each?
1: So that's one each of the salmon. I'm okay, so we'll out. have to fight over them. <laughs> okay. Alice, do you want to get two, so you have one each of them. How big are they? Quite small. Okay, so,
0: we've got, so I've, I've done three. Now, why okay. don't you choose an, um, a... Do you want to try some
1: sushi rolls or, or rather some bigger place that you guys. It's up to Helen. Oh, I'm. I'm, half, I'm. Is nigiri the one with the rice underneath? Nigiri is like the traditional, no. like rectangular pieces, like the rice and then the fish on yes. the rice. Yes, exactly. Well, how about. Just salmon nigiri because small portion. Yeah, you can, you can get one of the varieties, so then you kind of get the try. Oh, meat. okay. Um, there's three varieties then. Yeah. Of, I don't know. Just so to try some of the sushi also, okay. Sure. Oh yeah, that's a good idea. Popular. Yeah, you shouldn't record this bit. It really <laughs> does show.
0: So this shows my. Best? lack What's of a none.
1: good dry white wine? If you want something that pairs well with the sushi, yeah. What would that you that recommend? Thing. Maybe like the Sauvignon Blanc is quite dry, and uh Pinot Blanc as well. The ones I... up here, or the Picpoul. Oh, cool. I like Picpoul. I'll go
2: with that.
0: I have no idea. <laughs> My husband's really into wine, and I specifically consciously ignore it. So I just know <laughs> I like There's Marceau, but apparently Mosso is quite expensive. No so. expensive <laughs> taste yeah. Do so you guys want two large glasses? Uh, yeah. 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 yeah, and then we'll see how it goes yeah, yeah, yeah. and we've got, yeah, we've got water so
2: I'll grab the menus from you guys we've and I'll bring them to yeah the, if perfect
1: you want to thank you here. very yeah, much yeah very good thank yeah. you sorry do you like some water I would didn't no. mean for that to be so tortuous no, no I think this is the interesting
0: thing like this is a lesson for the podcast maybe going to a, a restaurant with <laughs> <of> a smaller <laughs> menu or get people to look at it beforehand yes pre, research pre, re, research exactly yeah. speaking of which <laughs> because um, for those who don't know you Helen Yes, because you you are obviously the the mastermind behind Blonde Money, and
1: um, how long has Blonde Money been yeah. going now? Do you know? I actually started it as a blog in two thousand and thirteen. Wow! So it'll be ten years next year, which I astonished me. But it was very very small blog to start with that uh-huh. was just for me, and then basically it really grew in twenty sixteen seventeen. And turned into a business and I quit my job as a fund manager in the city and came out and started it properly as a full research house.
0: So so you were doing it as a hobby to begin with?
1: Well, a frustrated outlet probably. You could probably identify with that sometimes in that, um, you know, you work in big organisations and you can see all these risks building up. You're trying to put them together and you feel like you're screaming into the void and nobody's willing to engage with it. So, um, and actually the impetus for it was was in fact Brexit Uh because I was at a US Fund Management House, Uh we had a global investment call, you know, in whatever it was, May 2016, Uh was that the month before the referendum, and I just remember on this investment call, People talking about uh, you know, the Brexit referendum and not even entertaining that Leave could win. And I, re- I remember interjecting, simply saying, Well, guys, we are risk, we'll we look at return versus risk, so mm. we should at least consider yeah. that Leave might win. And I remember laughter on the phone
2: right, from everybody. And, yeah.
1: and, and that, that frustrated me for many reasons, but, but particularly that. There's only two options on the ballot paper, so, you know, unless you think it's 95% versus 5%, yeah, there's probably. a risk there. And even then, you could argue, like, the net present value of that risk, even if you thought it was only a 5% chance that Leave would win, you could you could have said it might have a very large impact, which you should therefore consider from an investment perspective. Well, it's, it's
0: scenario planning, yeah, which would be logical, Yeah, but I guess that was the interesting thing about it, is that... There was no scenario planning, um, it was really a big
1: surprise to everybody in... in well, in London. Yeah, in London, <laughs> right, exactly. But it, uh, well, And we had people on the phone from Switzerland as well who were, uh, interestingly, you know, also didn't think it could happen. But I, where I what I then realised was that political risk is very hard for financial markets to deal with. It feels flimsy and complicated and unquantifiable. And that's what I wanted to do with the business, was try and make this stuff quantifiable and try and flag up, here is the risk, how do you monitor it, yeah. so what should you look at, is there a price of a particular asset you might want to monitor, or, you know, I'm sure we'll come into this, we'll talk about other topics, you know. So what, how,
0: it in, how politics uh, influences specific yeah. assets, classes more so than other ones? Well,
1: uh, really, more I think of it as... Um, I always start my kind of client presentations about the Titanic, right? right. And why did the Titanic sink? And the truth of the matter really is, um, they they didn't pack the keys that opened up the binoculars, right? So they had binoculars in a box, but they this is an unsinkable ship. Somebody it just wasn't high up the list to remember the key to the binocular box. So overconfidence. Overconfidence, exactly. Classic. I mean, you know, this happens in markets all the time, obviously. Um, and but but the, but the point is, what? Okay, fine. I'll give you the binoculars, but then you need to know what to look for. So I, when I say a certain asset price, I just mean, or is there an indicator, a measure? For, for example, we, we're going to talk about this, I'm sure. Like gamma in the SP. Mm. This all sounds very technical and weird, but support. But when it comes to politics, you want to look at like the marginal voter or the marginal MP. Yes. And it might be someone you have never heard of and all you ever see are headlines from big names. But actually it's it's this person that matters. So tell tell because for listeners
0: who might not know your background, so you you have some experience in the world of politics.
1: Yeah, I should say I, I <laughs> I'm sitting here in my blue dress. Yes, today. Exactly. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, I, I, I've I, done, you know, I've been in both, I've been in both, you know, Westminster and the city, because I um, worked for George Osborne, 2008-09, during the banking crisis, I went and worked at a centre-right think tank called Policy Exchange, working on financial market regulation. I have always loved politics, uh-huh. um, I know, what a weirdo, yeah, um, oh, something exciting just arrived at the table.
0: Avocado. Uh, it's oh, it's our, the guacamole, it's but, the but, the but in a very fancy bowl, thank yeah. you. Here you go, here's some, uh, just to make sure we're crunching our yeah, way. Yeah, we are
1: actually in a restaurant, we're, yeah. this wasn't some weird like, <laughs> fake setup. It um, looks nice, so it's, in a, it's a,
0: it's a, is that a pestle? No, I do know
1: what it is. So, and I do, I do talk my mouth full, so this might, might be bad. This is, um, this is okay. always bad for the person who's being interviewed. You they know want, what I need to do, this is all, this is something that doesn't translate visually, is I'm not very tall, and I have now had to sit on my cushion <laughs> to see into no, this no. bowl. Actually, or is this very low? Think.
0: I was thinking that myself because, and I don't like tables where the where the seat is really low. I'm going to do it too. Oh, good. Okay, because, because you feel so like hot. you're yeah, like in, um, child at the
1: parents' table. Honey, I shrunk for kids.
0: <laughs> and that's my life. <laughs> <laughs> my
1: um, my goddaughter knows me as the smallest adult. Oh, that's Kylie's. Um,
0: Kylie's Kylie, made it into things. Kylie, so Kylie, she, yes, like she,
1: she's rather you know. She's some other better attributes than me Kylie but uh, there's, I mean, there's well Janet Yellen of course famously not very tall
0: oh yes she's quite diminutive. because obviously Volker was a giant mm. and Powell's taller again is Powell tall I'm not sure actually I'm not sure either I'm not sure but I know I met Volker and he was massive um, yeah What's he, like? we, he was he came to our um, oh here comes the wine oh He came to our, um, at Alphabet, we had a quiz in New York, and uh, he came to be the host, and... um, God, what was he like as a host of a quiz? He was very easygoing, and and like, you know, this was maybe in 20... I don't want to lie, it must have been around 2017, something like that, maybe before. Anyway, Mm. he... um, it was a really good sport, and um, I asked him about Bitcoin, and he was like... <laughs> did you? Yeah. Oh, what did he say? He was... Um, what fun. did he say? But he basically kind of went, oh, yeah, I've, I've seen this thing. I'm not really sure it makes sense, but, you know, he wasn't immediately dismissive, mm. Mm. which good. I thought was interesting. Mm. He was kind of like, yeah, I don't quite get it, you know, blah, blah, but, you know, he, he was kind of intellectual, like, he was curious, but not, like, he didn't... I didn't get the impression he thought it was going to be a thing, mm. but um, well, but going back to um, sorry yes I no, no 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 not at all. Um, so you because how did you get sorry, into yes. so you were at, you're trained as an economist?
1: Yeah, my so my, well my degree is famously PPE, which is uh-huh. now somewhat disreputable. <laughs> so politics, philosophy, and economics mm. at Oxford at Christchurch. Mm-hmm. I can if I'm brutally honest, I wanted to be prime minister. That is why I did that. I mean, I I, I have always loved politics. Um, There is even... So I've, and I've always liked writing. So I've actually got a diary that I kept. Um, when I was nine, I wrote this summary of the leadership contest for the Tory party when Thatcher got went up against. and drew a little picture of Michael Heseltine and the little... I didn't like him, so I was like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, how like weird. But anyway, so I've always loved politics, wanted to be Prime Minister. My parents said, come on, get some money together first, go and do a proper job. Mm-hmm. And I did an internship at Merrill Lynch when I was at Oxford and got you know graduate position and actually ended up on the training floor. I started, we went to New York for our graduate training. We flew back on the 8th of September 2001. 9-11 then happened and it was obviously manic and they got rid of a lot of graduates the ones they kept they put in foreign exchange which I didn't know a lot about but that was actually where I began to do currencies on trading floor first right and that was in London yeah that was a great time
0: so this was this was your first job out of uni basically
1: yes exactly so you yeah. must
0: be class of 2000 2001 so literally so you were the same oh I think with, well I I did a foundation as well so but yeah oh, I'm, I'm roughly right. the same yeah um, we know other's age now yeah
1: <laughs> yeah, we, should, we shouldn't. Yeah, we shouldn't should we broadcast it. it know, but no, no. Let's we have. To. Yeah <laughs> yes. Um, we can never hide from thank that. Thank you. Perfect. Uh, yeah. Oh wow, that's the beef. That's yeah. the beef it it the does part, look fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. So I just need the. Yeah. And the ceviche mix. Yeah. Oh, oh, perfect. So oh, nice. And the great yeah. thing is,
0: is, it's all cold, so there's no. <coughs> right. Yeah, there's no rush. That's actually a very good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. Oh wow. That, that might be warm. The might be. I mean, the guacamole is very nice. I like the guacamole a lot. The um the only like the only thing I've realised is with the large glass of wine, well, I feel like I'm one of the few people in the world who really judges the glasses that the wine is served in. Yeah, that undermines the taste of it. Do you think it looks a bit cheap? Yeah,
1: <laughs> if, it's, if it's. It does. It looks a bit like something in my house. It, no, it
0: looks <laughs> a bit like something you get in an all bar one. But that is um, the only. <laughs> I mean, that's my. Which My, is weird, the actually. last time I kind of used to hang out in, I don't, I don't really go out very often. Well, geez, no, neither do I. I am,
1: um, yeah, I was quite pleased with, um, hmm. I am going to try some of this. Okay. I was quite uh, pleased, the pandemic aged me in a nice way. Like, it slowed me down, meant I didn't go out as much, but actually that was quite welcome in the end. Why don't you take that there? Oh, thank so you. The other
0: problem is having mics on the table. Yes, compromises
1: the. Um, yeah, the small plate vibe. I see that now. Is he? Um. So yeah, so we're anyway, probably
0: go. probably roughly the same generation then. Mm. And um, so you went straight to Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch. But sorry, Mer- Merrill but- Lynch,
1: the other M. Well, the other failed, no, yeah. not failed, but, <laughs> but I should mention, by the way, I do think that your formative years in the markets mm. tend to shape your yeah. expectation of them. Thank you. So, for me, because it was the dot-com crash, mm. 9-11, war, a lot of market volatility, I mean, inevitably the Fed did, of course, cut rates and things did pick back up again. But I do think that that period into which you graduate can be quite indicative of where you think markets go. So I would generally say markets people are either living the fat tails, or they're uh-huh. mean reverters, mm-hmm. and they think it's just all gonna be good in the end. And, and of course the truth is somewhere in between the two. Um, but I, I recently was looking at a chart, sort of um, market cycles, since 1970 in fact, and you realise, of course, that the 2008... So I had 2001, 2 happened. Then 2008, 9 happened. Right. Then we wobbled a bit, didn't we, in like 2018, but not really. And so for me, what we had in March 2020 was overdue. Mm. But if you'd started in 2010, mm. or even if you'd started 2007, you'd experienced 8, 9, but that was it. It was such a long upswing. Such cheap, easy money, and now we've just had that again. There's a whole generation of people that just don't... I, think I haven't this experienced is it. So
0: important, like for me, I think you know when I was coming in, you'd speak to kind of the old timers, <laughs> yeah, and they'd have all this insight about dot com that I didn't because like dot oh, com had just happened, yeah, and I don't think I was switched on enough, like in the real world at that time. Yes, that is also to really understand the repercussions of what was going on. Yes, um, so it kind of like, sometimes the, it's it's the stuff that happens just before you kind of rise up to the world mm. that you're most ignorant mm. about. Totally, um, totally agree on that. So I didn't really appreciate the implications. And of course, like, those who were like six years, seven years older than me, .com, that that was their big thing. Yeah. Um, and they had LTCM, of course. And they had LTCM. Um, which I, that was the one area that I was, because I'd read that book very early on. Um, oh, good for you. But other than that, I think, you know, that's what I see now, is like the younger kids are coming in, in the easy money environment and in the crypto environment mm. what am i doing why am i putting all this in? no do you have it have it, have it. and <laughs> I, um, took, I took those oh. okay um and um yeah and they no, it no, always idea. fascinates me how their knowledge gaps work mm. and it's almost a discipline to remind yourself that you can't assume they know X and Y mm. it sounds really patronising and awful but actually um, these knowledge gaps I think are really like they really influence the market yeah they do more than you
1: appreciate I, I think one of the things for me is that you know, I so I came into the markets with a very macro background but actually that period of the early 2000s was fairly dominated by quant and physics grads mm-hmm. maths grads and 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 I think we've had a clash of those sort of two world views. And it's still for the juries out on on maybe which is more successful. And arguably, of course, you need both. Mm. But I do feel that you, you do need to have an understanding of history. So I get really frustrated at the moment when people talk about inflation, which is we need to actually go back a really long way. We need to go at least to the 1970s, but quite probably probably three or 400 years, actually, if you want to start drawing any real historical comparisons. That's very true. But the problem you have is that your data set is not complete because even if you did go back further than that, the, the world is more globalised, financial markets are bigger, more liquid, more interconnected, more technological innovation. The, the irony is that for all these hedge funds and people that like to look at patterns and r- r- repetitive data, the data itself cannot be compared. We just cannot compare to even, possibly even to thirty years ago, yeah. Because of the people involved and in the scale of the transactions and all the rest of it. One of the things that got me, and I'm sure. We'll go into oh, this, that's a very interesting point, though. So basically, what you're saying is that these historical
0: data sets don't really appreciate the relative proportions of the trade that's going on,
1: mm, yeah. And therefore, they might be mis- like it might not capturing the same effects mm. to some degree. Because one thing that surprised me when I started looking at it again, when I started to get interested in volatility and and mm. it's and how it must be assessed. It's not exogenous, it's endogenous, but we'll come into that. Mm. I didn't, I just simply looked at open interest on the VIX.
2: Mm.
1: Now it exploded after 2008-9 mm. because people went, oh, I could use this as a hedge so I can carry on doing my equity investments, but I'll yeah. just make sure I have some VIX um, because I don't want 8-9 to happen again. Then they got crushed because they were buying insurance that was pointless mm. because they've got back stock by central banks. So then everyone flipped into selling volatility which worked brilliantly for, and it got, but, it, but it, as with so much um, selling volatility it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger but what I hadn't realised was the scale of it yeah. and that for me is quite an important market structure issue that is different from the market I began in or even the market from 08, 09. it really only picks up in I have to look back but maybe 2012 2013 it's like maybe a 10 year phenomenon and of course as we are just talking about some people have only been around for 10 years so exactly so they're completely So they the you no know, and, and that's that's great and I don't want to criticise those people but I think I think we all need to be aware of the limit of our knowledge and our experience um, and it's just one of these funny things about finance isn't it that it, as I say it's it's a very it, it's it's deceptively quantitative because it's not really yeah. it's got loads of data but human behaviour is still and always going to play such a massive part in it.
0: I totally, I, I think that's one of the things that the quants and the techies don't really, they always think that the technology can trump all those social yeah. um,
1: influences
0: and it never does. Um, no.
1: Because one thing that doesn't change is people. Exactly. Fear, greed, always the same. Um, and
0: and for example they will always never be able to eat a tacos <laughs>
1: glamorously
0: because it just like as soon as you bite on it it escapes i was bite, it,
1: i was enjoying isabella
0: trying to get into the taco yeah, because because it just squirted out the side i have not
1: tried it yet and i just um, don't think it's possible to eat it gracefully thank god is this we're not filming on no camera no at all. there is
0: no camera thank
1: god <laughs> yeah that that is definitely a rule that you should stick to definitely um because the
0: tacos are deaf i think they're almost like a one mouth well, like, yeah, but like,
1: how big does your mouth? Have, to be? Oh, have you done that in one go? Okay, mm. have to do it in one go? Okay.
0: It is a small tiger, but it's okay. so large.
1: Yeah, it is. Can I, I'm just gonna approximate it for people. It is probably an inch and a half across. Yeah. Or no, sorry. Let's be modern. What's that? Five centimeters? It's
0: about five centimeters.
1: It's yeah. about the size of a of half a a small. It's a tennis ball. It's a, it's oh, it hard. is. Yeah, it's half a tennis ball. Yeah. Okay, so so we're currently putting half a tennis ball into our mouths. Hey, <laughs> okay, this this podcast is taking a, an an intriguing turn <laughs> as two women discuss yes. the size of what they can fit in their mouths. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Look, sorry. I worked on a trading floor. It's I fine. Don't worry. I was um, oh, no.
0: when I was at UCL. Um, I uh, my um, my nickname was. No, I shouldn't. Say. No, my God, I want to know. Oh, okay, I, want to I was one of the. I have very small hands. Very small hands. Yes, I like really tiny hands. Oh my gosh, you're one of the few people with yeah, yeah. A smaller hands for me. So I had this amazing party trick, which meant that I could fit the entire fist, my entire fist oh, into in my mouth. mouth. Yeah. yeah. Great. The nickname was related to that, but we shan't we shan't
1: go into that. <laughs> Need no more wine. Need this in the evening. That should be like an outtake section. Yeah, that you I do think, later. I, I
0: think that should be from the outtake. <laughs> so yeah. Anyway,
1: what what So sorry. So I yeah. How did so I went into markets, but
0: always loved politics. And you, what you were doing? Which what, what trading floor? You were FX, right? Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: So I went from Merrill Lynch to SEB, Swedish mm-hmm. Bank. Yeah. Great bunch of people there. Totally different culture. Incredibly different culture from an American bank to a Swedish bank. I mean, it was like. Totally different. Just no hierarchy whatsoever, which was, which was good and intriguing. Um, and inevitably, our first offsite was at a spa.
2: Um,
1: yeah, in a, with Abba. Yeah, With ABBA. <laughs> God, playing, I wish, I wish. Yeah, I mean, I love Sweden, great place. Um, but then, two thousand eight came along, and Rod's been kind of getting fed up with the limits of financial markets. Mm. Oh god, oh, yeah. our sushi has arrived just as I get to that we
0: point. We haven't even finished the r- rest of it. Oh. No. I have these ones because these look really nice.
1: Like, yeah, that I, was I really good. The beef, can yeah. I just, do you want to finish it? it? No,
0: did you have it. I've sure, thank you.
1: That. The beef thank was you. a big hit everyone, the beef was a winner and it was not that truffly. It was great. At all, it a good amount of truffle. I think the sauce is the truffly sauce. Here, why don't I put these on
0: here and you can take that. Okay, I think there's still something to scrape there. it.
2: Yeah, so we have the crab kraburamaki, with perfect. the salmon Ooh. on top, and the spicy mayo, That looks and awesome. oh, then we cool. have the nigiri.
1: There's oh, yeah, perfect. classic. Akami, which is tuna, salmon, and, and cedar. Perfect. perfect. Yeah. Wow. Thank you okay, very much. Thank you. Well, I'm going to just take one of each. Mm. Um, so, I, I had been thinking about getting in, back into politics, and obviously, you know, 2007-8, the market was... Are going nuts. Fragile. Yes, <laughs> it and it came. I, you know, I even mean to say I don't quite know how this all happened, but I'm going to pass um, the hmm. sushi to Isabella. But I don't know quite how this happened. But I um, got the opportunity to, to go and work for George Osborne. Um, I think. Because yeah.
0: how did that they won wand-
1: I, d- I, d- I still don't know exactly how the initial introduction got made, but th- I do know that his team were looking for people who understood banking and finance. Okay. And, of course, the hilariousness is that me, at 27, knew more than, you know, pretty much his team. Um, no, no disrespect to them. They were a good team. Um, but they... It just wasn't their background so much. Um, yeah. And George himself... Uh, was God? I don't know how old he was at that time. He was quite young, I remember. I mean, George and David were young when they became the leaders of the Conservative Party. I think maybe David Cameron was like forty, what? Maybe forty-one. To, and George was maybe late thirties when he was Shadow yeah, so Chancellor. Younger than us. I know. I know. Yeah. Gosh, this is getting into don't the Don't police, <laughs> the police look young these days? Anyway, um, so. That's where I was when Lehman went under, I remember I was in George's office, and oh, wow. I remember him coming in that morning, it was whatever it was, Monday the 15th of September uh, 2008, and he walked in and just looked, he saw me looking at a newspaper, a physical newspaper, we're still reading physical newspapers there, and he just looked at me and went, bet you're glad you don't do that anymore. <laughs> and I, I was like, yeah, but then there's a bit of me that wasn't, because of course there's a bit of you that loves volatility and like that was so insane. Because we went to bed on that Sunday night. You can oh, tell me wow. your experience of this, but we went no, to bed on this that. Is fascinating. We went to bed on that Sunday night thinking a consortium of banks was going to buy out Lehman, remember? There was yeah, like yeah, five big Wall Street yeah. banks. So it was Merrill, which was then B of A, they were and City and they put uh-huh. together a rescue bid. And I just remember thinking, well obviously that's gonna happen. And just when you wake up in the morning and thought, what? Didn't happen. And and what I think we should actually remember about that Lehman experience was, of course, that the administrators walked in and turned all the computers off. So part of the problem was nobody knew, nobody knew who had derivative lines with what, because you couldn't speak to anybody to see where your contracts were or what happened to them. And actually, the stock market didn't fall until three weeks later mm-hmm. which is I think important to remember now because we have this like 24 hour news cycle and, and things in, you know react immediately and I, I think it's actually quite important that they don't react immediately because if we had known on that Monday morning exactly what was what the world would have stopped but well, also back then
0: people still had um, like there was still some friction in terms of banking mm, yeah. so we didn't most of us were not banking on apps no and so could you imagine if, exactly. like, today, you know, if, if, if Lehman had happened today, capital flight from frictionless apps, like, because now you just have to put an and instruction gone. in yeah. and it's
1: gone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did have online banking, but there was... Mm. No, you're right. Nothing like now. But it those wasn't it.
0: in the same frictionless, like, and there wasn't the expectation that things would settle immediately,
1: like, instant payments, the way we have now. Yep. Um, so, I, I remember at the time, so... I ended up, after working with George, I went and worked at policy exchange, partly so that I could write policy. Part of the thing when you work for a politician is, of course they create policy, but they're also very prone to the media cycle. It's hard sometimes for them to do long-term thinking because they're so caught up, and right at that point there was so much going on. So when you go to policy exchange, I could sit and write a research paper, it could take me two months, rather than, by tomorrow we need to know what you're going to do about this thing it's interesting in its own way but
0: actually i'm really fascinated to know like is it really that like
1: does policy get determined on a sort of knee-jerk basis i said i mean i'm being a bit harsh um they were a bit more thoughtful than that but i think it's got i think it has become more like that i mean that was over 10 years ago and now we have because you didn't have twitter then exactly so you
0: weren't immediately getting like feedback from the crowds do you think Yeah, I think policy
1: now has become very short-term. And do you think social media has a role in that? Definitely, definitely. Um, I think we all have shorter attention spans, um, which is a real shame, actually, in many, many ways. I'd love to see, like, some psychological, scientific papers written about how we are now processing information and making decisions, because that speed element... Well, actually, there's a good book by Robert Colville... Uh, who's now the director of the CPS called The Great Acceleration. I think that's the title. Anyway, he looks at all of that. You oh. meant part of it is, is share trading. Um, and Robert Colville, I know, because we were on an Only Connect quiz team together. Oh, what, what is that? <laughs> so Only Connect is this quiz on, I think it's on BBC Two. Um, but oh. it's just the geek... You know, it's, it's great, but it's super geeky. It's the geekiest quiz ever. Victoria Corrin Mitchell presents it. Um, and it is... You have, to, uh, you have to make connections. So you'll get like four clues and you have to say what connects them but it's like super weird lateral thinking esoteric stuff. And in one round you have to get, you, have to, you get the clues and then you have to say what the fourth clue would be. So it's like a, it's like those IQ tests you might have done when you were younger or verbal reasoning or something. It's like, it, it, how do you, what, what, I don't know, what connects the soy sauce to the sashimi to the whatever but it would be far more He's totally I wish I could even think of. I mean, I didn't even know why I was on the team because, as you can tell, I am not that good at making connections. But Robert, I was on. I was on a team with two Roberts: Robert Colville, and Robert McElveen, who, who are great guys, and they were they were brilliant at it. But the, the reason I was there, I think, was my skill was the final round. The final round, they take vowels out of a phrase, and you have to say what the phrase is, and they and they obviously jumble the word. They they it's not like three letters and five letters and three letters. They just punch it all together. Yeah.
2: Okay. So they're like supermarket slogans. Ah, right. So
1: I, every little help. They, they take all. Oh, right. so, so all so you see it, is win? No. Oh, we ran the first round. We did not win the second round. Sad times. Anyway, I don't know why we got into that. Oh, but acceleration, yes. Things are speeding up. Our brains are... Definitely having to deal with more short-term information. So yeah, in terms of policy, well, I think I think the difficult part then was you had banking policy that had to be that had to be immediate because you had to yeah. say, would you nationalise Northern Rock? Would you um, make depositors whole in a bank and blah, 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 all this stuff? But when I went to Policy Exchange, it was about <clears throat> longer-term financial regulation. We actually looked at this is going to make some sound really geeky, but we looked at inflation targeting.
0: No, but the NGTB2, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, all of that stuff, which I which I really enjoyed. Um, but but the but yeah, so so I went to politics change to be able to do more of that stuff, but in the end I came back to finance. Right. Because the problem with politics you a problem. The problem for me with politics is getting anything done. Right. So I always put it like this. <laughs> business is about what works, politics is about what sells. And that means you approach it differently. So if you're running a business and you you need to get profits up, you know, you make decisions, you fire people, you yeah. add a store, you just do it. Yeah. Politics is about getting people on board, winning the argument, winning around the stakeholders, ensuring that it works in practice. It's... You have to have a mandate to do anything. Oh, yeah, you totally do. Um, so, for me, that I found that was quite frustrating. You can probably, you probably tell I'm an impatient person. So I then went back into finance, and then went to became we worked for hedge fund, worked at a fund manager. So I was I went from sell side to buy side. Um, and sh- how was that transition? Um, it's quite difficult to do. I um, I took the CFA certificate.
0: Hmm.
1: I'm actually now on the board of CFA UK. I should declare.
0: You're also a free man of the city.
1: I'm a free man Even of the city of London. A exactly. Woman. <laughs> I know. I know. Hmm. I know. You, I, you, they just they're never going to change it, are they? But free person, which is that's fine. I, I'm not really object. I'm, I don't object to it. Yeah, you
0: know exactly. What it, I like tradition.
1: So exactly. Like, and this is something that's gone and been around for, I think maybe like a thousand. The important years. thing is
0: that they accept you as a woman,
1: right? <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. No. That is true. Yeah.
0: Um, what, it, what does it
1: even well, mean? Well, it's. It's being part of a livery company, and the livery companies are all based around different professions. So you you know you have the ones, the candlestick makers, and the butchers, and the bakers. I'm in the worshipful company of international bankers, which sounds awful, I suppose, but um, (laughs) but it was where I was at. And to be fair to them, you know, their goal really is to meet philanthropic efforts. To like, for example. Um, provide financial education in some of the local schools in the area, that kind of thing. It's a big charity, really, is what they do. They're trying to give back something um, to a community that... Well, it's funny, isn't it, the city? People people live there, but but then there's just transient people that go into the city. So what is well, their... It's only
0: very recently that people re- live there, because it used to be that you couldn't really live
1: there. No, I mean, I guess I'm talking more like Tower Hamlets being close yeah, to the city, yeah. and obviously a an, you know, very deprived borough, etc. And, 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 uh, you know... Uh, I think my goal, really, with joining CFA UK, joining the livery company is I wanted banking and finance to be professional. Right. I just want I want people to do it professionally.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because, actually, I come from a background, like, my dad's an accountant. So, you know, there, you know there's this... And he, he was really keen... At he, he, one point, he was, like, a, a grader for the exams. He was very keen on continuous professional development. You have to do that as an accountant. <clears throat> and I, I felt like... profession in that way is important to be a part of because it should by its nature mean its members adhere to a certain code of ethics if they Mm. don't they get booted out it should mean when you go to an account you know what they're doing but banking sadly has never had it and neither really has fund management um which is why i was i like you know the cfa with you can't you cannot pass the cfa designation if you do not pass the ethics section of the paper yeah
0: yeah, no, this makes sense.
1: I mean, it's very similar in journalism
0: because there is no, mm. I mean, there are journalistic unions and there is a sort of code of conduct that is usually um, enforced by a mainstream title. But in the world of free, you know, in the kind of wild west of freelancers and these days, mm. anyone can start their own website, right? Including me. <laughs> um the um, it, the lower entry barrier means that there's you know standards are very hard to enforce and so that's one of the reasons I think yeah guild there's a lot to learn from guild structures which is basically what you're talking about
1: exactly that's yeah. right yeah.
0: that's totally right yeah. and and God knows we self, need to, self it's like it's a self-regulatory kind yeah. of thing and and really when the government is failing to regulate I mean do you think now given your insight into two thousand eight from the political side do you think they overshot with the regulation do you think it's just about right what, what's your um mm. well
1: i think the banks are a lot more solid than they used to be so that's good yeah we got that right i don't see another crisis in the banking sector um i'll tell you what frustrated me and why i moved out of politics back into finance mm. was <sighs> politics is a moral debate yeah Okay, so you could say there should be a National Health Service free to all. Mm-hmm. And I could say, um, no, it should only be free at this point or something like that. But there is no no, no there is no right answer to that. Yeah. You may feel this is right because of your moral code and your yeah. values, but there's no right or wrong. A bank is a utility. If you set it up this way, you'll get that outcome. If you set it up that way, you'll get another outcome. And that really started to frustrate me because it became very difficult to um, regulate without being... Polluted by the moral aspect. And I remember, do you remember um, was it Adair Turner who said at the time about socially useful banking? Or we need so banking is not a socially useful activity. Yes. And that's what I mean about the political language around it, because at the end of the day, we do need banks. Yes. Now, yes, okay, set it up to you know ring fence certain activities to it's all about incentives, isn't it? Yeah. It's all about incentives. So I mean, look. I'm yeah. Come from the right wing of the political spectrum. I'm not against regulation. In fact, you need you need. Uh,
0: do you know what? I will have a small one. A small one yeah, because yeah, Isabella's it's had
1: to start drinking to yeah. get through yeah. my yeah. rant. No, not at all. It's just <laughs> I do, and I do with I've, yeah. um, I've had. I've uh, had. I've had a long weekend, but not <laughs> oh, yeah, we like
0: should, ha- We should talk about. We should, yeah, we should get I, into need, that. I need. I well, need the little one. I have a little uh, one, and sh- so it's nice to get away and have a glass of wine. Oh but, God, I'm sure it is. Jeez. Um, but anyway. um, but no, also, d- by the way, the record was last the first leaked lunch where Paul Murphy and Dan and I had two bottles, so it's fine. But that's normal for for, 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 for an alpha lunch. I shouldn't say that really. Um, a lunch on uh,
1: you know on our own clock.
0: Not, not on official mm. office time, of course. Um,
1: but, yeah, go on. So, Well, I, I was just going to say that regulation in and of itself is not a bad thing. Right, no. You need not. rules so that the game flourishes. Absolutely. Um, so, when you say did the regulation... I don't know, I mean, I...
0: Do you think they got it just about... Got Probably really about not right.
1: bad in the end, really. I mean, there's been some unintended consequences that I'm not an expert in regarding... Um, Do you think,
0: though, the people making the legislation really understood the kind of real meat of what goes on in banking? Because you and I have often kind of... I don't want to deflect because I do want to get to how you got into doing blonde money, but Mm. I think it's a good moment to just bring up how opaque
1: banks still are Mm. in certain areas. Yeah, Yeah. Well, they're designed to be silos, aren't they? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: In the end, that's what led me to leave one, was that, great, I'm doing foreign exchange, but... I'm actually really interested in what's happening in credit derivatives, mm-hmm. and it's just like that's not rewarded. What is rewarded is do this one thing really, 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 really well. Yeah. Now that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, Adam Smith's pin factory and all of that. You know, the idea that each worker will have their specialism. Hello, Thank you. Yeah.
0: Thank you very much.
1: But um, that is a better glass. That is a better glass, isn't it? So their smaller <laughs> glasses are better than their big glasses in style. No, they are. Anyway, go on. You look much more glamorous with that one. It's, it is more glamorous, girls. Um But that's fine, as long as someone at the top can pick up all those tiny little risks and aggregate them up. And this is constantly being the problem, isn't it, with banks? Yes. They're too big and nobody really. You, it's hard to be both generalist and specialist. Yes, exactly. And in, actually, that's what you need, really, to really keep on top of risks. Um so where were we up to with that? But uh, I, I
0: get the impression that you've become quite polymathic in that sense. Because
1: you, you understand
0: right. banking, but you also understand politics.
1: I have to say, yes, I mean, I have to say a lot of what I did with Blood Money um, is, to, is translating risks from one world to the other. Mm-hmm. So I sometimes feel like I'm a, a linguist, putting it in terms that. that the other side can understand.
0: I think that's very right, and and what you were saying about the sort of um, quantification of election, um, you know, results. I mean, we all knew we all grew up with the swingometer and all that stuff, but it's really got very sophisticated these days. It and has. what was the name of the great um, the American guy who's very good at? Um, who does all the projections? Nate- oh, Nate Silver.
1: Yeah, yeah, Nate. But he got it wrong, right? He did, and it's been a bit unfairly criticised. Because I still look at their stuff. I think, as we look, this is a thing all the time, isn't it? With data, you have, to, you have to have that critical eye. Of I've seen your conclusion. Mm. Now, how did you get to it? Mm. And then say, all right, I, I like what you've done, but you know, there's some weaknesses in your system. And of course, that is diff- I get it. It's difficult for a layperson to understand, or anyone to understand. So that sounds really patronising. Let me rephrase that unless you're bothered to be geeky enough to go into the plumbing, which, why should you be? It's, it's hard, but what what we tried to do with our election predictions, so we we predicted a big conservative majority in 2019, we thought it would be a majority, I think 63, when it was 80, so, you know, we were okay. In the US election, we went state by state and said that Trump would win Florida, but that Biden would win overall because he would win Wisconsin. Um, and the, but the way that we do our predictions mm. is to take quantitative data but the data that we believe is relevant to a voter decision Okay. so what is it really when someone walks into a polling booth that swings their mind what are they looking at and you could get really complex on that and you could we, we initially, when we were looking at the US, we were trying to look at like COVID deaths, mm. thinking, did that, I mean, unemployment, was that the thing? And then we thought, no, actually, it's a referendum on Trump. Yeah. yeah. So how do you proxy that? So then we looked at uh, the votes for Trump last time around, <coughs> the latest opinion polling, um, i try and remember what else we went into it. Maybe like the tribalness of the seat, so you know, like <clears throat> how much of his core he rely on, et cetera, et cetera. So what I mean by that is, yes, we took data, but we made a judgment call on what data mattered. Right, right.
0: So you're kind of, you know, when I look at, when I think of big data, it's like there's a lot of noise in that big data. So you're trying to take the noise out that might be distracting from the overall signal. Mm -hmm. And um, and maybe some other projectors of outcomes are maybe allowing the noise to infiltrate a little bit too much. I
2: think,
1: I think that the man on the street actually has quite a good sense often of the political mood mm. and we in our ivory towers can get a bit too snooty and quantitative about it. Like let's look, the, for me the big theme of the last, look, let's go back, 08, 09, after that the political spectrum to me became establishment versus anti-establishment and the establishment had failed. So people voted for anyone who looked anti-establishment. The greatest success that links Farage, Trump, Macron portrayed themselves as being outside of the establishment. Hilariously, because they they all came from it, but anyway. (laughs) That is the irony. But the
0: um, the reality is that, yes, people felt, I think, that it was the whole Russell Brand thing. Like, Mm. whoever you're going to vote for, you're only going to get the same thing. It doesn't matter whether you vote left or right, you're going to get the same thing suddenly there's a real choice on the table with Brexit, suddenly there's a real choice on the table with Trump. Mm. And people are like, yeah, we'll, we'll take the
1: choice. We'll, yes. We might be self-sabotaging, but we just want a choice. But that's where I take issue with this concept of populism, and I don't like that reference to it, and I also think there is a pejorative angle to calling something populist. Oh, I agree, yeah. And it also just clouds the issue. I mean, what is populism? I mean, you know, Jesus, I did a flipping politics degree. We could probably write a PhD on that, but... But what are we really saying is that is that there's, yeah, someone outside of the establishment came in and promised you some answers and promised you change. That it wasn't working for you and they would change it. That's pretty straightforward stuff. What's interesting now, of course, what's the, what's the greatest challenge to an anti-establishment candidate is the pandemic, because the only thing that can step in in a national emergency is the state. So what you now have had is the state stepped in and done stuff. Yeah. So now, the anti-establishment grouping are going, Ooh. some of them are thinking, oh, no, hang on, I, I do want the state to do certain things. And then there's a, you know, I would call it that authoritarian-libertarian angle. So yeah. that's more authoritarian people. And then the libertarians are like, no, no way, I this is awful, I hate it, I hate this, yeah. this is even worse, you know. So what you end up with is, whereas you had, like, a simple two options, you've yeah. now got four groups of voters and that is why so many politicians are struggling, it's why, particularly why Boris Johnson is struggling so Oh much. that's
0: very interesting because I don't think people have really picked up on that in markets because I think they're still um, thinking of things from the 2016 mm. perspective. So you think Covid has changed, changed that the big time yeah. and introduced a sort of like freedom maximising vote. Exactly. And which is
1: kind of like on the left and the right. It is. Again difficult to deal with as a politician. So I realised this about Dominic Cummings, actually. You know the furore, of course, about Dominic Cummings. Yeah. Um, I realised that that his slogan, take back control, brilliant. That just unites everybody. Everybody feels like, everyone felt they'd lost control and it was giving them back control. But, take back control for whom or for what? Now, you either think, I want my government, my parliament to be sovereign, mm. or you think I want me, my individ- me as an individual, to be sovereign. They're actually two very different things. Yes. And, you know, Cummings was smart by, you know, getting them all together. But the problem with COVID was that there ha- and I'm sure people who listen to this see it amongst their friends, right? It's a schism again. There are the people who would follow the rules because the government had told them. That's what, and that is what you do. And then there are a group of people who, who are sort of innately sceptical of the government, and, and actually, we'd be like, no, I'm, I'm not going to do it. I might do it because I want to, but not because you tell me. Yeah. And so that's why there's been some, you know, that, and that's a really fundamental political question. Yeah. And I don't really think any of our politicians are particularly well-versed in dealing with it. And, and actually, I actually think it's going to make any... It, m- my prediction has been we are going to have weak governments because it is almost impossible to bridge that divide. And also, I, th- I don't think the government has acknowledged
0: that divide. I don't. I think there's still sort of like... I mean, that's my impression, is that those who challenged lockdown or thought it was overly severe are still kind of discredited and seen as, like, wacky, you know, individualists, whatever. Um, but actually, they're quite a significant chunk of society. And the government has now, with the inflation crisis, presumably... Yeah, you know now is going to be the repercussions of lockdown. So it will be interesting to see how the message um, yeah can correlate with what's happening on the like if there was to be another like outbreak of COVID or whatever. What what do you think?
1: Do you think? And I think there will be. By the way, I think we are almost strongly odds on that this winter will be a vaccine-evading variant. Yeah. Yeah. Now, not saying it will be more deadly necessarily. And of course, the way it impacts, I've been thinking about this a lot at the moment, the way it impacts different societies, mean, I'm not an epidemiologist, I so know we all have to be like, I know. but but we can all agree yes. that there will be different levels of background immunity.
0: Yes, exactly. There was actually a piece in the FT today about antigenic original sin, which I Ooh, thought was... Ooh,
1: interesting. What did they say? So for me, this
0: was very interesting because I've been very, I personally have been following this story for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um... And I was shocked by how taboo it was to talk about it, because what what does it mean? So basically the idea is that um, the virus that you expose, like the flu for example, people who were born in 1930 were exposed to a certain type of flu. And so weirdly they might be more resistant, to. so if it reemerges, like 50 years later, they don't die because they've already got Got that that strain. So you get these weird anomalies, like where certain cohorts of the population start dying, and it might be because of how they were primed in terms of the initial exposure. Right. And then by the time as babies, effectively, as babies. Right. How you are, (laughs) like the first exposure, kind of determines your future kind of um, resilience to different types of viruses. And the idea with COVID was, as far as I understand, again, caveat, I'm not an epidemiologist either, or a a virologist, the way I understand is that, obviously, COVID is a fast mutating virus. Mm. And if you had like the original COVID, Mm -hmm. um, you were primed for original COVID. And that was, um, and the vaccines, of course, were primed for original COVID. So when you then get like the new strains, Mm the question is does that priming like does it help whether the if does it affect your immunity if the vaccine is not as um, geared towards that original priming because it might there are I'm not an expert in this field but there are sort of schools of thought that might actually undermine your immunity if you've had the wrong priming because it's like yeah. so the metaphor I was I, learned, I heard was like it's like if you're watching you think the virus is like an arsonist <laughs> and he is lighting fires yeah. so if you are properly primed against that particular virus you can recognize that he like his entire description of what he looks like.
1: Ah yes right? but Whereas, if not.
0: If not you only have a vague understanding that he only sets blue fires and therefore you only go after the blue fires but actually... He's changed strategy, and he's now lighting different types of colour fires. And mm. I mean, this is probably, I mean, if anyone from the medical world is listening, it's mean, <laughs> yeah, probably, probably a disaster. Yeah. But that's how I understood it, and the idea is that the, your, your system gets a little bit duped, potentially, because of how it was originally primed. Oh. primed. Well, there was a story in the FT today actually acknowledging this fact. um, It's quite unusual for the FT. But it was unusual, and I think what annoys me personally is that that just debating this priming issue was repressed. Like, even questioning the idea that, you know, maybe we should be not promoting, um, you know, vaccines haven't been really updated since the original...
1: Well, I was Very wondering good. about that, actually. I, I, I wasn't sure. I saw that the FDA in America had said this autumn one that is tweaked for Omicron should be released. Which but... makes sense. I
0: mean, look, I'm not, again, I'm not an expert in but it seems logical that we yeah. need to upgrade
1: them. <laughs> yeah, well, of course. Well, of course the, the, so... We talk. I kick things off with our discussion about, you know, historical parallels. Never before, never before, mm. has a vaccine been deployed at this scale and at this stage in a virus's mutation. So, you know, that that it's we are literally living and breathing an experiment. Now, it's an experiment we've had to do. I'm not, you know, criticising in any way, shape, or form. But, but I come at this from what are what are the risks as I as I look ahead. It's that the virus is constantly mutating. It's, uh, of course, it is to survive, and we also know that immunity wanes over time. We know that this is the data from the vaccines is that it wanes over time. So we're in for quite a difficult winter if a vaccine-evading variant. Now, it may not be more deadly. Who knows? We just don't know about that, but. But I think it's going to be quite... I think it's going to affect different countries differently. You know, if you're a pure scientist, you'd probably be fascinated by this. Because what you're going to be able to do in real time is take, like, populations, literal populations that you can compare, and look for what you've said, which is, well, did you actually have a really bad um, first phase? Or has it been more recently that your population was infected? So it may well be that some countries, just by nature of that... Just because the the, the
0: place they like where they were in the cycle, yes, delta. Yes, exactly. So it could
1: it could be it could be worse, could be better. I don't know yet, but I'm pretty sure. Well, I'm sure it's coming. It's not this winter. I'm sure it'll be after, and it's it's going to affect different countries differently. Which might sound an annoying thing to say, but I. But what it what it what it should remind everybody, is that from an economics perspective. Well, there's two there's two clear conclusions you can draw. One, from an economics perspective, the world economy will remain highly inefficient. Yes. Supply chains will continue to be under stress, yeah. that's going to be a problem. That is that's good. a given. Yeah. Two, the politics that we've just talked about, that ain't going to get any easier either, no. because then, we've just said that, you know, the popula- effectively um, populations are splintering on multiple cleavages, which makes policymaking difficult, and... It, it, it makes it makes a government governing very, very difficult. And again, that is just a given. So I just... I Everyone thinks I'm this gloomy person. I'm actually not a gloomy person at all. I'm quite a cheery person. But I just look ahead and think, yeah, it's going to be a pretty shitty Q4, to be honest with you. I mean, we're fine once we get through that, by the way. And I think. Well,
0: how do you think the political mood will change,
1: given inflation? Like, Well, yeah, we haven't even talked about that, have we? Really? Um, part of the reason we haven't talked about it... It's all anyone ever wants to talk to me about and has done for 12 months. And I almost wrote a piece, I think I did write a piece called Forget Inflation, which was going to have a bit more of an aggressive title, That didn't think swear words would get through people's spam filters. <laughs> what, what I was driving at was, inflation is a symptom, not a cause. Yes. So yeah, it is a really big issue, but there's some way bigger issues underneath that and some way bigger impacts to it all. So what I'm just astonished by, and you might be as well, kind of economic illiteracy of what is happening right now. Yes. Like, I could. we can argue about what the remedy should be, but let's have a good, solid, consistent argument about it. So are you going to pay people more money? Are you going to give them... Are you effectively going to try and fight inflation with inflation? Or are you prepared to take the pain which will be demand destruction to bring supply and demand back into sync? And both require honesty from politicians and an, an understanding of the long term and we're getting none of it honesty from po-
0: politicians will be will be hard <laughs> um, but yeah I, I agree and and certainly with the whole strike situation now yeah. you know that is going to be the biggest force pushing for higher salaries and once we get the wage spiral situation going yeah, um, I'll, I'm quite interested to see how it will impact the gig economy whether oh, um, yeah because obviously you've got now this entire labour force that came out of, um, and also you have to have the ceviche. Oh sorry, I didn't no, see no, ceviche. Sorry, no, the ceviche. I think we're okay yeah, I you, do, do you want to, maybe if you bring the menu, we'll have a... Oh yeah, yeah, that, yeah, this, course, they are. Are. But yeah, the gig economy mm. is quite interesting because I don't think they have really, um, like obviously a lot of people left the workforce during Covid, mm. and they took up work in the gig economy. And it worked for them, and it was a better way of life. And um, especially if you're content creating whatever, and there's like loads of money sloshing around <laughs> in the system. So yeah, and there's furlough, and there's you know fine. Um, but will will that actually will that survive in a proper inflation? I don't think so. I think um, it'll be interesting to see how how the um, price pressures filter through. <laughs> Because like something like Deliveroo, yeah, interesting. If, if they if you have to actually raise their, the the wages there, most people just go and pick it up,
1: pick up a delivery. That's a really interesting point. I mean, that's, that's my a impression. really really interesting point. The lazy factor yeah. is,
0: you know, I don't think we'll be able to. Um... Well, I it's
1: mean... such a turnaround, isn't it, from basically deflation for so long Yeah. Um, that. Again, an entire generation has never known anything else. I mean, I haven't really... Well, I say I haven't seen much inflation. It does annoy me a little bit, because remember 2010-11 in the UK, CPI hit 5%? I mean, well, it's I, not
0: I, 9%. I remember before 2008, 2007, presumably, mm. when there were a lot of letters Mervyn King had to write. Mm, that's right. You're right. And he was, it was going over 3% back then. But that was hardly problematic. No, I know. I... Know. I, I I remember, like, as a Pole, I remember my granddad, you know, coming with, you know, I remember every time I went to Poland, the money would change, but, you know, mm. that sort of stuff. So I, I remember it in my deepest, darkest, like, youth. But to be honest, yeah, as a seven-year-old, you don't really register things the same way. But, um, but what I'm interested in is, obviously, um, speaking of, like, the COVID inflation bridge, Yeah. You, you've you worked with Matt Hancock as oh. well.
1: Have. I helped him write a book on the financial crisis actually so, yeah. called Masters of Nothing and yeah and how
0: how was that entire experience and what, what is the real Matt Hancock like?
1: <laughs> Matt is a good person to work with, incredibly dynamic very driven, very focused and let me tell you um, keen to get things done which a lot of MPs are not, a lot of MPs like talking yeah, and not doing Matt does actually like to do things, now you might disagree with the things he does um, but and and, and and he because he worked at the Bank of England previously, and because his parents ran a small business, he did actually know something about finance and markets, which again, an awful lot of MPs do not. That's interesting. I don't think people give him credit for that. A lot of MPs know nothing about. Um,
0: well, I mean, I don't want to card. name names, but I was giving evidence to the House of Commons oh. Science and Technology um, Committee last week, and one of the MPs thought that our currency is backed by gold.
1: Oh. yeah. But I don't blame She was very sweet. I don't But it's it. frustrating, though, no, no, isn't it? It's
0: illustrative of
1: how well, the knowledge gaps. And at a time work. like this, yeah. super worrying, frankly, when you don't have politicians in command of basic economics. I mean, here's another disclaimer I was at university the same time as Rishi Sunak. He was the same year as me. I knew him a bit back then, but did the same degree as me. Um our lives are taking on different paths. <laughs> <laughs> um But um I was surprised to read in the newspapers that like Rishi had invited some economists to effectively give him a history lesson about about inflation in the nineteen seventies. Hmm. Um now you can you can look at that two ways. You could say, Oh well, that's good he's finding out about it, but secondly, how did he not know that? He did do economics as part of his degree at Oxford. Yeah. Um but yeah, get, I mean, get, yeah, I mean, yeah. As may become apparent, I obviously do know quite a few people. I, I don't just know people in the Conservative Party; I do know people in the Labour Party <laughs> and Liberal Democrats. Should say on the actually on the board of Blonde Money, the advisory board, I made sure to get a combination of backgrounds because um, I did also fall foul of being told our analysis was political whereas actually as you know markets are apolitical markets yes. don't know what's going to happen
0: and it's essential for them to be told uncomfortable truths yes exactly that go beyond the politics of yes. any one investor because otherwise you lose money
1: so i i was quite pleased at the point where i got accused of being a brexiteer and an evil remainer or something at the same time on twitter because it basically meant i was obviously annoying everybody equally well that's good but you know, i was only just you know, that was in the phase where we were predicting all those brexit votes where we went through mp by mp to do it but um I was going to say, yeah, that you know, yeah, on our advisory board we've got, you know, we've got Paul Tucker, we've got, who's a a very, very interesting guy to be talking to. Well, fascinating, and I mean, knows so, so much. He's quite a polymath. Um, I think he's
0: one of the most. I mean, he's one of the most um, common sense people in banking. I find his. the way he manages to explain things and how they happen in the crisis or whatever, whenever I hear him talking I'm always very impressed, but No, no,
1: well I think the main thing about people like Paul Tucker is, you know, he, he, he lived, he's he got a hell of a lot of experience, yeah. so just, you know, you, yeah. at a minimum you should listen to what that experience yeah. informs about things we've currently gone through, whether you agree or disagree with what he may or may not have done in the past. But yeah, we got, and we've got um, Lord Wood of Anfield, who's Stuart Wood, he's an academic at Oxford, but he, he advised Ed Miliband. We've got Nicola Horlick, who was a Liberal Democrat candidate, Nicola obviously Hallett, also an entrepreneur. Yeah, so, so the, you know, the, the, I don't that's know where sorry, we're going to. So, so you've got a very... Actually, I was going to ask, so how many people now are in the uh, Blonde Money universe? <laughs> the Blonde Money universe, there's about six of us, so we're not, it's not big. Um, we are looking at this moment in creating a new product that's pure just UK political risk actually Um, so we may well indeed be hiring and doing more stuff Um, because our client base has been mostly financial market participants so there's been hedge funds pension funds high net worths but actually what I'm now finding is I'm getting approached by a corporate or indeed just by a business person who knows they need to know about UK politics, but cannot stand reading the newspapers because all you ever get is a biased... Yeah, partisan sort of perspective. ...nonsense, yeah. which is no use to you. I mean, you know, people want to know, what's happening to my taxes? What's going to happen to the, what, the country? Is Boris hanging around? Not, yeah, they might have a personal opinion, but they just want to know what's happening to the country. But also, I get the impression that in this day and age of incredibly fragmented
0: news... Yeah. You miss massive stories if you're, because nobody reads a newspaper anymore. No, and um, and actually, the editorial process you don't always. Even if you read like newspapers, if you're reading like the FT or the De- Telegraph, you'll have totally different perspectives and different stories in your in your timeline. Yeah,
1: yeah exactly. And What's the news? There is the no actual consensus
0: news. on what the news is. Yeah, and there is so many stories as a result of that that no one. It's like um, it, it's very hard as a as a business or as a you know you don't have time to read like fourteen no. different papers. No. So you need someone who can just filter it for your specific need. And so I guess that makes a lot of sense. And I actually, I remember when you did Twitter Spaces with us ahead of the German oh, yeah. election. Yes, I remember that. And that was the first time, really, that I picked up on what was going on, going on in Germany. I thought, why is why is it that that has, like, massively gone over my head? And it's yeah, not like it I don't uh, read the news, I read the news religiously. Yeah, so. yeah,
1: exactly. Um, and it's important, right? Yeah, leadership of Germany important. is leadership of Europe. It's, it's, yeah. it's leadership of, of, of the world, in a way. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm totally with you on that. And then, of course, the way they report about it is has to be turned into something sensationalist, which is
0: absolutely frustrating.
1: But, well, Isabella, you Yeah, finish it. Isabella, you're, um, you're, you're, you've hit the nail on the head of the name of your venture, which is The Blind Spot. Oh, that's
2: very... No, you have, but you've say.
1: just described it. There yeah. is a blind spot. And I think what's happening now is people are recognising there's a blind spot. Mm-hmm. And they know about that, but they're like, well, where the hell do I go now? And the thing that, so there's something we do every day. We write, it sounds simple. We write an overnight wrap of the news stories you've been getting it. For yeah, me, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like it's six, six bullet points. But if, and it's something I did as um.
0: But the, the key thing about it is that less is more. Yes. Like,
1: actually... Well, my COO tells me that. All the time. <laughs> no, no, but
0: it's really important because I can read your, um, you know, daily digest and I can consume it in the morning and feel informed without feeling overloaded. I think exactly. That's, that's really and, that's
1: how, and that is how, how it's supposed to set you off. And it, it came about because I used to do it every morning when I was working in markets. My COO, in fact, was my first boss at Merrill Lynch. So we've known each other 20 odd years. And he did it every morning. And we have both found over these last few years, so so we tried to get out by 7 a.m., it takes us longer and longer because we go through reams and reams of stories and we we discard most of it because it's opinion, it's not fact. Like, if you're a market person, what you want to know is, okay, so, have Russia gained some territory in Ukraine? Right, exactly. Um, has a grain supply shut down? Has, um... Uh, you know, the Biden administration signed an executive order. You just, what, what's actually happened, right? You might decide it's good or What has
0: actually happened is,
1: <laughs> in the name of a of a good newsletter, <laughs> what, what has, has actually, actually
0: happened, <laughs> as opposed yeah. to all the Not noise. Like,
1: oh, my God, oh, my God. Because like,
0: so I've been trying to, I wanted to do, like, a media uh, analysis section or a blog or a video blog, whatever, where I just go through the techniques that journalists use to mask their (laughs) ignorance in stories. And you'll notice it's always like a story, like, could happen. This could happen. But it doesn't. And usually the the way that works is that journalists um, have an inkling for a story. They go out, they start to do calls, they start to work on it, they Google first, Mm. of course, and then... um,
2: we're on. Yes.
0: Oh yes, Gosh, We have. I I think we'll we'll just pause for a little bit, and then we'll revert in a a bit. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Thank you. Are you finished? Yes. Thank
0: you. Yeah. You're right. And then they um so they they do that. They kind of initially scuttle about looking at (laughs) their, their stories, and then they've got enough to sell it to the news editor, who commissions it, and then they go and they speak to all the sources, and then. The one, they leave the sources that are going to debunk it to the end. <laughs> and then when, the, when they finally do speak to the sources that would debunk it, and they debunk it, they're like, oh crap, I've already invested <laughs> like two days <laughs> worth yeah, of work yeah, of in course. this. Yeah. So that's when you start to rewrite the story and you turn it from like, this is happening, to this could happen. Ah, and, and, that's su- interesting. and suddenly you have like because you've already sold it to the like it's already expected yeah. you can't just and, and and it's bad for your career of course you, if you if you suddenly retract on a story it's like oh it did not turn out that well and you can see that there's suddenly like a conspiracy of editors kind of like going okay well when, maybe if we tweak this and you know and this is when oh, I God. usually would be like well, I'd rather not publish
1: this because, you know, yeah. but you get pressure to Of course you hard. do. Of course you um, do, because then if they're not, then, then they put back and someone else to do some more work and what are you are going to fill it with? And... Precisely. So I feel, I think you're 100% right. And it's, and actually, do you know what we've tried to do for the last two years was find a way of maybe getting AI to, to web scrape yeah, yeah. and deliver an unbiased headline. <laughs> if anyone's listening to this and thinks they can do it please contact me because because we've struggled to find anyone everyone goes oh yeah that's really easy can never do it I'm not saying they have to do the whole thing maybe do 80% of the work and a human being comes in and does does the last 20% makes it more intelligible or something but but it's it's, it's, it's I think it's actually quite important for financial markets I mean it's important for everybody actually that the news has become this way but really for financial markets they're supposed to create a price based on Discounted information currently known or probabilistically known in the future. Right? It relies on facts or a, um, you know, you know, probable outcome of facts, and they're not getting facts. No, because there's a lot of noise and
0: and and, and you know, I would say propaganda as well. Like, oh whatever. God, there's a lot of that. Well, what, I mean, irrespective think, of what?
1: one thing, I would always say I, we should maybe do something on this, like how they write articles. Because one thing I picked up, sadly, in the FT, which I think was didn't used to do this. You get the lobby groups. So there was a classic one where like British Poultry Council say, there'll be no turkeys at Christmas. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. And then, by the way, there were, like, too many turkeys at yeah, Christmas. Yeah, no no pigs and vine and whatever. Yeah, yeah. and, and, and I, you know, I, to, I know PR. I don't have a problem with PR. I understand why industry bodies make these stories and give quotes and do give data. I get it, but they're, they're selling a perspective, right? Not a fact. Well, you know,
0: when I was uh, leaving the FT and... I had like some insider info because I knew what I was going to do next and nobody else did. And I found myself like for the first time in the position of a a, a power broker PR <laughs> mm-hmm. where I could PR myself and it was really interesting to see how like you could so easily, you know, like you there's this temptation to like egg your story or manipulate it and and you end up kind of, you know, sowing disinformation here to then blah 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 create intrigue and drama. <laughs> And then you realize, well, this is what PRs do, and um, is, and this just cre- pollutes the entire information space, and to the point that signal is is almost impossible to determine. And somebody quite smart um, told me, and I think this is very relevant: is the problem with PR and lies generally, so they're exponential, whereas truth isn't. So they always oh crowd out the truth
1: because, like, that's example, interesting. Why? Why would you say? Why do they well, say for that? for example,
0: like we could come away from this lunch and you could like in, either of us could lie about the truth mm-hmm. and there are all sorts of multiple lies we could tell about mm. there's only one truth, truth.
1: I see yeah of and um and so that whispers yeah whispers so by definition,
0: by definition by definition the lies end up kind of until until there's a jarring moment where it has to reconcile with reality and then you like are exposed with your pants down or whatever whatever it is but um but that that brings me to another point that you have been focusing on which is gamma. <laughs> yes. So what how would you explain your interest in gamma and what it and the significance of it for markets and investors?
1: So my interest came about because I'm a big macro person as should be evident. I believe in macro fundamentals driving long-term asset prices. Right. But over the last 10 years or so, it is clear to me that information and news as we just talked about facts were not affecting prices as i believe they should be doing and i believe it is to do with a large part of issue of market structure mm. which relates to this concept of gamma so so where i said to you the price of an asset is all known and probabilistic information over future discounted to now it's not always because sometimes the market is distorted mm. um because we've had an awful lot of interventions. Now, I'm not saying the interventions are right or wrong; it's just how it is. Gamma is one way of interpreting this market structure. So, gamma is, as the name suggests, a Greek letter. It relates to options markets because the way and this. Sorry, some people on the list of this will know this inside and out, but some people will never have heard of it. It's, so let's I, just. I think it's worth
0: just. Let's unpacking just assume it. nobody yeah. knows anything,
1: and you, other people can fast forward. <laughs> um, but you know. The, the, an option, the price of an option uses different Greek letters for the different risk factors of, of the price of it. That's pretty really badly explained. Ha- let me make it more simple. So an option gives you the right to do something in the future. So it's based on stuff that may happen in the future, which is obviously uncertain. There are different things that can affect that price, which are things like volatility, or the time, or the interest rate, or the current price of the asset. And the way an option price changes based on the price of the underlying asset is called delta. And the delta of an option is the probability it's going to hit its strike price. I don't wanna get into too much detail, but it's the price of an option, this right to the future varies based on the price of the underlying. So um, an oil price, an option on oil, if oil's trading at $100, but you've got the right to buy it in the future at $150, As the price moves up, the delta changes, it becomes more likely to happen because the price is moving in the direction of your option to buy the oil in the future. So delta is to do with how the price changes based on the price of the spot changing. But then you have something called gamma, which is the change in the change. The change in the change. It's just a second derivative. Don't worry about it too much, although please do feel free to go away and Google it all. I'll tell you how it was explained to me when I first started in markets, really. This is the shortcut. If, if any, None of that makes any sense to you whatsoever, which is fine. The shortcut is, in a long gamma market, the market makers buy low and sell high. In a short gamma market, they sell low and buy high. Right. So long gamma means you tend to be in a range. Right. Buy low, sell high. Buy low, sell high. Buy low, sell high. Just keep repeating the range, it compresses volatility. Right, right, right. Short gamma sell when it's falling, buy when it's rising, it exacerbates it has, yeah, the exactly. prices. Right, right, right. So, it, all this is is think of it like whack a mole yeah. that game where something pops up, you smash it down. That's yeah. what option market makers yeah. do all day long. Yeah. And gamma is just a little indicator that says if it does this, you sell, if it does this, you buy. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: And the direction of it just depends on if it's long or short. Overall, the market, all market makers. Now, the reason it's become so important is something we alluded to earlier on. There are now s- so many people trading volatility in and of itself that this hedging mm-hmm. behavior has come to dominate because, and I'll tell you this, this is something I learned from being on a trading floor in my first job and sitting with the option desk. The only people who have to trade every day are options traders. Interesting. Because time, time affects ticking. an option, yeah. <laughs> It's an option, it's a choice, it's a chance in the future. And so as days progress, you've got to do something. And when, because an option, so so when you buy a Vodafone stock, you want the price to go up, you don't want it to go down. That's your thing, That's, that's what you do, you're long of the stock. When you're an options trader, you're not just looking at the price of it you're looking at time you're looking at how volatile it is you're looking at interest rates there are all these different things that affect your option price and you can buy whack-a-mole every time something happens you can you can slam the the mallet down on the mole's head you can remove that you offset it you get back to what you really want to be focusing on because trading an option is like instead of just doing one thing you're doing five things yeah so four of those things you might not be interested in. So just clear them. Just hedge them. Net them off. Get rid of them. Get to the one thing you're interested in, which often is volatility. So gamma, gamma is this daily trading, which, because actually options in the S&P 500 are a lot of them are over the counter. Sorry, sorry, that's not right. A lot of them are exchange traded. They're listed. You can see them. You know what's happened. You can you can quantify both the open interest in these things and also the size of them and the direction that most people have. So there are these people out there and the one I follow as you've heard me mention many times great guy his little his his company is called Squeeze Metrics Oh yeah. He's a lemon on Twitter that's his little avatar Um, but that's all he does that's all he has he has he's a data cruncher and he can just aggregate up all of his activity and say long gamma short gamma that's it. Yeah. He does more than that actually but it's and the reason that I have I care about it is I've realised over these last ten years that the scale of volatility selling leaves the market makers so long of gamma that they're constantly buying and selling, buying and selling, nothing happens. Volatility just gets completely compressed, mm. and that means that what I see as a risk yeah. cannot be reflected in the price because it's just overwhelmed by this buying and selling, buying and selling, buying and selling. So it so
0: crowds the price, out the real risk. Isn't correct. It crowds yeah. out the
1: real risk. So what you have to look for all the time is when do we flip into a short gamma situation? That then allows the risks to be priced. Wow. Which is why you could have a remark, this was you know, years ago, you could have a remark by Trump that, that didn't move the market at all and then three weeks later it totally moves the market. Yeah, because there is this sort of like
0: definite pattern
1: where suddenly a story will go viral yes. and have an influence even uh, though it's like, you're like nobody
0: cared about it yes, three weeks ago. Exactly.
1: Because it, think of it like because it's a constraint like, it feels around. like the white market suddenly wakes up to a risk. But yeah, but that's what's happening is you, the market is being bound like in a straitjacket by these gamma traders, yeah. and then they loosen the cords, and, and then they're allowed to price in a bit of a new risk. Yeah,
0: exactly. And then when they do, they have to overcompensate, presumably, and
1: so it kind of like it can exacerbate. But it exacerbates both directions, by the way. Often it's often thought of as. Relating to big down moves, because down moves in stocks tend to be bigger than up moves, which is true, but it, it can just be in volatility. So you can go down 3% one day, up 3% the next, which is where we have been, we're currently recording this in the beginning of July, yeah. we have had a much shorter gamma situation, I think it's about seven weeks now, Yeah. which pretty much chimes with the volatility that with we've the seen. Volat- so, so the gamma coincides with the volatility, and yeah, so presumably this is not going to be a quiet summer then. Well, we have to wait and see what happens to these options trading. So, yeah. what drives the options trading? So, here's the thing, and I think this is—I think this is an intuitive thing people can get, which is, if you're really worried about the world, and you own risky assets like stocks, yeah, you can buy a put that is effectively insurance. Insurance. Yeah. Meaning, if the price falls your option goes up in value, you may be losing money in your stocks, but your options offsetting it, so it's like a hedge. So lots of put buying might show people are scared, but but the action of buying the puts creates a self-fulfilling flaw under the asset because of the size of what, it's only because of the size of this market that that this has happened. It sometimes happens in single stocks and you'll sometimes see it in things like Tesla and things like that. But, but broadly speaking, the more worried people are about the downside, the less likely it is to happen. Yeah. So I, I actually think that's kind of an intuitive life yeah, that makes thing, sense. right? I yeah. mean like the shocks that happen in your life are not the things you've worried about. Yeah, yeah. They're just shit that gets The unknown you very much. unknowns. Correct. That are the worries. Exactly. So what so a market is more likely to crash at a moment of hubris and complacency. Now, what happens in Hubies and places, You stop buying those puts, because that's just wasting your money, buying it. It's yeah. never going down, it's never going down again. It just goes up every day. Why am I bothering? Why buy, buy, upside, upside? Yeah. lovely, brilliant. Um, and it gets to a point where people get so... G'd up on making money They're like I'm actually going to sell options I'm going to Because when you sell an option You receive a premium Yeah
2: yeah. You
1: take the other side Of the insurance contract So you're like Yes I'm long this stuff And yeah. I'm selling puts against it And I'm selling calls against it And I'm doing all sorts And, and that becomes a consensus trade And that becomes a consensus trade And then that yeah. complacency Is when you get the crash yeah. So um, Because there's an air pocket On the other side Correct And that is Where we have been In these last Eight, six to eight weeks, actually, is that not only is there a short gamma position, but there's, there's actually not there's actually put selling going
2: on.
1: Yes. Now, I get it, and I tell you what, the, again, the intuition on it is, and I, I get it from some of my clients, they say to me, well, S&P's fallen 20% already, it's not gonna go any further. I can't sell it here. Yeah. Now, why would you think that? Why would you actually have that intuition, right? So what's that based upon? That is based upon I would argue Pavlovian response response to central banks backstopping markets, which is they drop, but don't worry, the Fed steps in and goes back up. is gone. The, yeah. like,
0: the, the FOMO. moral hazard I mean, the moral
1: hazard is basically it's extinguished from the market. You expect, you just central- so so so, I get that mindset. And often it is right. And actually, so look, I'm not... When, by the way, when the short gamma stuff happens, it doesn't always lead to a crash and it doesn't always mean bad things. As I say, it can mean big moves to the upside as well. But what it... Why would you think that just... because so This is always an important thing about being a trader or an investor. Why does the price matter to you? Yeah. Right? Do you think this is a good investment or not? Mm. Just because it's fallen 20% does that affect why I mean of course psychologically it does right which is you know it's where markets are all about psychology as well so now you might think that so you might think oh I can't possibly sell it here no 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 I, I, I'm, I'm buying I'm still buying this is going to go back up um and and then you might yeah you, well the, what we're seeing at the moment is people not just not just not buying puts they are selling puts there is net selling of puts going on so that basically tells you nobody thinks this is going lower yeah now and why do they think one that? way risk it is one way risk and why do they think it because to be fair to them the fed have the fed, always yeah, stepped in them. but it's not just that the fed are no longer going to step in they don't want to step in they actively want tighter financial conditions it has been in all of their statements all of the minutes everything jay powell and a number of others have talked the market about. thinks demand destruction will happen and
0: that will like spook mortgage market and then the Fed will have no choice but to go. Yes, it's the all bad news is good news thing. Yeah. And, but actually, I I mean, my instinct is to agree with you that this isn't the same binary choice that we had before because in a deflationary mindset, yeah, the Fed can step in because there's no real downside to it. And they have to actually because it's only the monetary authority that can deal with deflation. It's a bit like coming to a car crash which is already burning and then f- throwing lighter fuel on the situation
1: yeah just kind of clear it as quickly as yeah. possible it's not really gonna yeah whatever it takes has flipped 180 to whatever it takes to stop inflation so are you quite are you quite pessimistic
0: then in the next six months <laughs> or so it depends pessimism i mean i mean do I, you think we'll be here in like 12 months time being able to have a nice sushi
1: lunch i don't know actually i think well I think um, will it be beyond our price probably. <laughs> capacity? Probably. Well, here's the irony: twelve months, six months' time it will be; in twelve months' time it won't be. Okay. I think we're now in these increasing mini, mini cycles. This is the other thing that frustrates oh, that's very me about inflation. Oh god. Mini cycles. Yeah. That's very we, interesting. So the other thing that's driving me nuts about inflation is, and I understand why. We think it is showing us something about a business cycle, right?
0: Sorry, you, oh hello i am like, so into this are you this still now. Hu- are you still hungry or would you like something sweet, something if you, yeah, Yes, if before you'd like, I... I
1: can show you our dessert menu so... don't do have know? a dessert menu
0: well, we we could have desserts or you could have something else um, how hungry are you i'm okay but like i will if you want something else have well,
2: sushi
0: i could oh, do susis, I, amazing. we had sushi we we, we had
1: we had the we had a roll we had nigiri actually the sushi
0: was very nice I haven't
1: seen it I was thinking we could we could maybe just do another six pe- the six pieces yeah do it You'd what was it? it The yeah the, the six pieces of nigiri perfect nigiri. yeah Normal. just do that and, um, and another sparkle
0: yes is great.
1: That'd great. Be great especially Thank before I'm about much. to launch into my vendetta yeah institute. exactly <laughs> go go so, so mini
0: cycles inflation
1: you're right. annoyed with
0: the other thing about In- the,
1: the inflation, inflation we're all focused on it Because it affects our lives, but we're also focused on it because all the central banks target it. And why do they target it? Because it is a good, quick, easy way to say where are we in a business cycle? Mm -hmm. Is the economy overheating or is it falling into a recession? Fine. But that we are not in a normal economy. And all the talk of going back to normal is far, far too early, anyway. But you know, how could you possibly think we're in an economic, a normal economic cycle? We had a, had a once in a century pandemic followed by a war, an economic war, by the way. I'm not just talking about the land war in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the West is trying to get Russia out of the financial system. That is, yeah. that is massive. So. So inflation, is, so we're going to be, we've got these massive jumps in supply and demand in goods markets, in the labour market, in, in the services market, in, in every market. Yeah. And it, it takes time to equilibrate. The reason we have so many vacancies is partly because some businesses have survived that shouldn't have done. And it's advertising for staff that don't need to, and because some people don't have the skills for those jobs. Because we're also in the middle of a technological revolution, like we were in the industrial revolution. So the people who were like hand knitting stuff have been yeah, yeah, replaced yeah. by a machine. Yeah. So, so that doesn't resolve itself for six months or twelve months or even three years. And I'll tell you, the piece that I wrote, sixth of March, twenty twenty, I wrote it all comes to naught with like a pun on the naught, with it i wrote it n-o-u-g-h-t because i said all interest rates are going to go to zero because it's so bad but all of the intervention will come to naught because we cannot stop the complete recreation of our economy into a whole new economy and i drew a little chart which got much derided and you could see it on my twitter feed but it was like i wrote it did it by hand this was march 2020 right so i wrote what people hope and i did a little v where the economy never dipped below zero. Then I said, what people fear. And I did a V that did go below 0 I'm like, oh my God, well, that might have a recession. That might. Be. And I was like, the reality is, we drop and we bubble along at the bottom, up and down, up and down, two or three percent GDP oh, for 10 years yeah. until we get back again. And I don't, people have said that is really gloomy. I, I don't think of it as gloomy. I think it's kind of quite exciting. I mean, these are massive opportunities. Some companies are going to do brilliantly out of this. Yeah, because
0: now is, I've, would you say that there's a sort of focus now on real um, productivity in some way? Yes,
1: absolutely. I mean, we're we're now, we've accelerated technological change. We've made that leap to working from home. We could have done this over Zoom. I mean, I would think in a couple of years we could do this easily over virtual reality or yeah. augmented reality, and you could send around sushi to my house and I could send to yeah. your house and we could do that way. And I, By the way, I'm a, I like that. I embrace that. I know people think it's a bit dystopian, but... I think it could make life much more efficient um, yeah it's, it's I know It's of course we're human beings we still need human contact in some yeah. degree but actually I should say to people listening to this Isabella and I have probably known each other three two years. or three years well, definitely pre-pandemic. but we never yeah. met no, no, right no, 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 no. we have never physically met but know. but I don't think that affects our relationship no,
0: it doesn't. But it, I think I mean, it enhances.
1: It I, does. I think it's good I to think for me. I Perfect.
0: am still a kind of meatbag person. I like physical interaction. I think it's very important. For I also think like interaction
1: benefits from physical expression yes.
0: and feedback. Yes, and
1: that is at the moment really difficult to do yeah. virtually. So I, you know, I can see your body language. Yeah. Or I'm looking at your into your eyes. Yeah. It is, and, and, and we are human beings. We're not robots. We can't metaverse might change that I think I'm, might, I'm a you huge you might be able to express a bit more believer in the metaverse actually I, I really embrace it I'll tell you why because last summer I went to visit my friend in Cornwall and she's got like um, a 12 year old son and he um, he had us on his oculus rift yeah yeah yeah. it's and we were doing, amazing uh, yeah and we were doing and the things you can do No, it was with people I already knew so perhaps that's it but it was fun it was it was good I could totally see it happening um, anyway there are, I mean, I agree. I think its um, it's got a lot of potential. But, but what I'm saying is that just turning around and saying inflation is 10% and they need to hike 200 basis points, fine. But that's sort of missing the point, yeah. which is that we are going to have a radically different economy.
0: Yeah, it's a paradigm shift, in my Exactly, opinion.
1: it's a paradigm and, shift.
0: Um, totally agree. And I don't think uh, people have necessarily cottoned on that yet. No, and yeah, and and that's what I mean by
1: that. When we talk about the Fed and what they're doing, it's not a normal cycle. They they've got the risk now of you mentioned it, the wage price spirals. That it's all about the expectations channel, right? And they've got a point there, but who knows? I mean, you talked about you know this sushi lunch in six months or twelve months time. We could have a situation in six months where there's, like, mass unemployment, prices have dropped by another 10%, and then in a year's time, they're all back up yeah, 25%, and... Do you think,
0: though, with, like, these mini-cycles, with the gig economy, and everyone being much more fluid in some ways, so you will be almost, like, able to, um, I mean, obviously, some things that we need are, like, long-term projects.
1: You can't build a refinery no, No. in six months. You have to...
0: That's like yeah, and semiconductors,
1: and right? I mean, soon we're going to have a glut of them because they are building new factories, but it'll take three years to come online.
0: Exactly. No no, no better cure, cure for high prices and high prices in some way. But, um, you know. but I wonder if we will have... I think this mini cycle thing, there's definitely something to it and this kind of um, flow of labour that can just kind of mm. go where... And I think of it in terms of, like, the human body in weird ways, like the little... What is it in the I'm not a biologist, as we've already established. <laughs> um, what are the little cells that come like when you've got a scot and they come over
1: and then, like your white blood cells. Like your white blood cells. Yeah, they like yeah.
0: So it seems like there's like the gig economy is like your white blood cells that can be kind of shifted yeah, yeah, yeah. like wherever there is a necessary a need. need. And yeah. whilst we're shifting, that's the down cycle. But then working, working we 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 kind of top it up. Yeah. And then but these cycles will get more... Um, I, I like that idea. I think
1: that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, so that's why I think the 1970s is an unhelpful comparison mm. because we would, the economy was nowhere near as dynamic yeah. as it is now for the reasons you've just given. It's also why America always inevitably probably comes out better because it has such a dynamic um, labour force.
0: Because the dynamic... so There are things that robots can't do and AI can't yeah. do, but there is a lot right. it can do. And so that mini cycle might be a reflection of the merging of the, the mm. white blood cell people and the AIs, whereas usually a business cycle takes take six, seven years, whatever. Exactly. Yes, it would. Because you would have to have learning. Yeah, you learning, to, learning yeah. new
1: skills. And whereas the
0: AI kind of maybe accelerates some of that, but it's still bound by bricks and mortar and reality and like mushy yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. reality. And that's where you can fill it in with yeah. I I, I can see how that might. So to so, so, so what you're saying essentially,
1: potentially, mm. the AI has accelerated uh, the business cycle. Potentially. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 causing us to evolve and adapt quicker. Mm. Yeah. And I leave it open as is that good or bad. I mean, like you told you said to me and you know, I like, oh you're pretty pessimistic. I'm I'm not. I'm optimistic, but only if we all let go of how things used to be i mean someone i really wish i could remember who it was but somebody in twitter in 2020 said i keep thinking i'm going to tell my grandchildren about what happened in 2020 but i've realized i'll be telling them what happened in 2019 right that that we're not going back there yeah we're not going back to five days a week in the office okay not all jobs can do that but we can see it like you can see it already right it's two years on and i think it was ibm said 30% Thirty percent of their staff are doing up to three days. They think it will never go back above sixty percent, and I think we should embrace it. I think offices can become really different places, more collaborative, more creative. Well,
0: uh, you know, do you, you do you have an
1: office? No, we then, don't. We were no. we were going to get one just before. pandemic. Oh, oh, thank God we didn't.
0: And I don't miss it really. Yeah. So do you meet in like? Do you just meet? We'll in just hire ten. a meeting oh, room, room or a
1: member of you know a member of private members' clubs. We go there, you know, which I did, which I did for the reason of being able to hire a meeting. Yeah,
0: because that's why. I mean, I I obviously am now working from home as well, and I have to say, I'm tempted by like some sort of office structure. If I get more employees, I've got one mini employee oh, at the no. moment, but um, it would be great to have,
1: like, yeah, it's not. I don't need it all the time. No, just exactly. A little, bit. a little bit of time, and and there is something to. I quite. So I write a lot, like you sometimes you want to write somewhere totally silent sometimes a bit of background buzz is helpful actually yeah. and also makes you not go mad. well bad. I think
0: those sort of serendipitous encounters with people that you never expected to meet like so much of Yes. You know, I was reading about, weirdly enough, I was reading about microdosing, and so, you know, like oh, yeah, Silicon so Valley, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they say that no, it's interesting. people were doing microdosing because like your pathways, you become set in a way, like in a certain way, and to be creative and to really come up with innovative ideas, you have to break away from your like pre-established pathways, and microdosing apparently allows you to do that, not that I have tried it. Hmm. Um, but it, reminds it was the, then the lunch took a
1: different turn. <laughs> Isabella reached oh, into her okay, handbag. Yes, <laughs> but
0: um, but yeah. exactly. I but, but I think the office is like a kind of microdosing thing where you encounter sort of, you're forced into sort of serendipitous encounters where you might meet That's like true. people just like make you
1: double down on your pre-existing
0: view or it might invite a different perspective mm.
1: And I definitely get yes. that from working at, at and home. and it's to do with the sort of work you're doing as well because there's definitely I could imagine you know a problem solving aspect to it where your team are working on something and then you happen to chat with someone from another team and they're yeah. like, oh well we dealt with it like this or could I introduce you to this guy mm-hmm. who yeah. did this that definitely it, I think for, we're, for, for we're,
0: journalists definitely that is I, yeah. feel, I feel like that that whole COVID experience. Like people don't appreciate how news changed because journalists weren't in the office. Oh, that's interesting. No, yeah. tell me more about that. Well, yeah, how did because, it change? Because like so much of like learning about what's going on. So did you think it was for the water cooler w- moments? Where so you're, you like gossiping? So you think it changed for the, the word? Yeah. Like, do you think journalism think actually the Everyone went into their little compartment silos. And, they, and I think the inflation story is one that I think is um, really indicative of it because I was very early on very fearful about. I, I was very. You know, I was very concerned inflation would become a problem mm. as early as mm. March twenty twenty, which is why I reached mm. out to Tian Um Dreismer Mangroup who uh, wrote this nice like piece for us about um well I interviewed him and about there being a paradigm shift and maybe us moving into inflation. But I could I felt like I couldn't say it um, mm. individually. Oh, that I had to well, find thank someone you. thank you. That I had to find someone else Enjoy. to thank you. To put that into kind of corroborate it, because it, to say at the time that inflation was a risk was to criticise lockdown, which was incredibly taboo. Yeah. Um. And and mm. I, I felt because we were working at hurt from home, I felt very alone in my perspective, and mm. maybe my immediate surroundings of people I, who I was in the kind of virtual world with. Um. I felt very much like. I was the only one saying this. So but did you then, find it
1: was harder to take risks?
0: Not just that, I just felt like there was a, um, a sort of peer pressure, not a peer pressure, but like a stigma associated with, with saying things like that. And um, But the, the reason mm. I mention it is because I recently gave a conversation about inflation and I actually went and did the research to see <laughs> how many people were saying there was going to be inflation and when I looked at the actual details, I was like, oh, wow. Hmm. Well, this person was saying it and this person. And why mm. did I not get the you perception? Mm.
1: Yeah.
0: Like, I had all these compatriots,
1: potentially,
0: who were on the same page, but didn't feel like so it was like you're all time. in prison,
1: thinking your own yeah. thing in your cell. Yeah. And nobody knows and you're so all you're, thinking the same thing. And you feel
0: very alone, but actually... Actually, you weren't. We, there are lots of us. And then for some reason, there was no... For me, at least, that's how it felt. It felt like we were outnumbered, or I didn't even realise how these people... It wasn't getting into my Twitter stream, or... I, I don't know how it was working, but... Mm. Anyway, so that's how I felt. Mm. But, listen, because we, we, we are running out of um, lunchtime, and, on and, and on. I really want to ask you about ETFs, because I oh, think yeah. that's really we how we... We haven't even talked about that. We kind of, like, first bonded yeah.
1: over, the, over that topic. You are um, the only journalist who understands ETFs. Well,
0: as well as anyone can understand it, because it's incredibly murky. Like people see them as these, you know, as I've always said, they're like these, they're presented as exceptionally um, simple products that are innovative and mm. um, only cheap. cheap, cheap. Yeah. Great news for the consumer. It's incredibly, again, like with inflation, to criticize EGFs. It's quite like you get you get slated for it quite quickly because it's it the consensus is definitely that they're good they're only like bringing down costs why would you and nobody cares about how the mechanics behind them work right absolutely and my general instinct is if something looks too good to be true it often is so where is like the fact that they are making things cheap that's great but how how are they doing that
1: yeah and why do the costs keep coming down because that's pretty unusual in financial markets Cost if the fee of a product is going down and down and down and actually to gain market share you have to cut fees and that somehow cutting the fees is the is a success story is interesting in and of itself right because that's quite unusual in economics i
0: also find that indicative of quality issues like sometimes you know it's like the ft would not sell it undersell itself yeah Um, yes yes exactly whereas there's no such perception because you're competing solely on price but there are qualitative like it's not like asset managers do nothing (laughs) or portfolio managers like there is
1: yeah yeah yes exactly their input how can their input be becoming less and less valuable right i mean automation is part of it but well, my thing with ETFs came about because I just never understood them. Mm. And I started working in fund management. I just wanted to know what they were and how they worked. And I just found the more and more I asked questions, the more questions it provoked. Interesting. And even now, I would say that ETFs are derivatives.
0: Yeah, I would too.
1: And finish that, yes. Yeah, i
0: mean done.
1: Um, and... Who is responsible for pricing them? That is the difficult part. So the bit that it has always and will always get to me is that you buy an ETF with the name of a well-known asset management company attached to it, but who is pricing it? Where does the price come from? And it doesn't actually come from the, the brand name of what you have purchased, because it comes from these authorised participants. So there is the ETF, and it's and it's you know custodied by the fund manager, and the fund manager, you know, is is, is involved in the administration of it. But it's actually the authorised participant that is responsible for its pricing, because it's, the whole argument about ETFs is if they get out of line with their underlying, there's this, there's an arbitrage mechanism that will return them to their fair value. And yes. Fine, a lot of the time that does work, but sometimes it gets out of whack. And that is a problem for two reasons. One is that you, as an ETF purchaser, may think, "Oh, this is trading at 100. I'm expecting to get 100 when I sell it. Oh, hang on, I've got 80. What the hell happened? Mm-hmm. That's one problem. But also the problem of the price disappearing altogether. Because what I learned from starting my life in a trading floor is just, you know, you don't always have to have a market. Yeah. There's no divine right to a market. A market is like a market stall. It's people turning up saying I'll buy here or I'll sell there. If nobody wants to buy or sell, we haven't got a market. Yeah, that is that is the that is the worst situation ever for financial markets, is if they cease to exist, which is what happened under Lehman. We knew that those mortgage-backed securities, maybe they didn't have a price of zero, but we knew they weren't trading at 100 anymore. And the problem comes with, well, where the hell is the price? Because it, yes. it's only through prices that the system works. So where I'm getting to with this is that it's the authorized participants the, the other buyers and sellers and what, what has really got to me about ETFs is that you you cannot easily know who are the authorised participants on the ETF I own. If you no. go to one of their websites no. they'll tell you the list of authorised participants but that doesn't mean it's the one that does no. VOO or IVM or SPY or And that's or only a new
0: phenomenon where they even
1: list them. Yeah, that, was, that wasn't even around for a yeah, long time. Yeah. And if you read the documentation as we both have an authorised participant is not required to make a price at all times in all situations. Of course they would. You know what? what how could anyone, any bank or broker, sign up to that? You know, you wouldn't. You, you're gonna, you're gonna make a market when it's in your interest to do so. Can I offer you our dessert, Um. Well, we probably. I. I
0: do you want dessert?
1: I'm alright. But I want... was gonna have a, a coffee. A oh yeah, espresso. good idea. Can yeah, yeah, espresso, please. That would be great. Can I be incredibly childish and have a hot chocolate? thank you, thank you. <laughs> that's totally yeah, yeah. ruined whatever cred I had left anyone no, who's still listening awesome, to this podcast awesome, awesome. it's my way of getting my chocolate fix in a no,
0: that's great. slightly
1: classier but not really situation so so but yes so to, so to me you know a product is only well two things there I want to know what I've bought and, and if I can't sell it why I can't sell it or if I sell it at a discount why right so you need to understand that but also, what have I actually bought?
0: Like, what's in it? And for so long, we didn't know. And the transparency that we have now has actually been evolving. And I don't think people appreciate true. that. That's true, yeah. So in the early days of ETFs, there was, like, very little distinction between a synthetic ETF and a asset-backed yeah. one. Now that there, there is more transparency. But that's only because successive sort of, like, debacles yeah. forced it upon the system. But even then, when you see the collateral... We still don't know the optimised baskets and you know what what sort of other, you know, shorting presence there is and, and I think that's for me, um, the the thing that people overlook, especially like who take them at face value, is that there is a lot of shorting activity and as a market maker, you are warehousing a lot of risks. Yes, this
1: is this yeah. is the key, is that you started this by saying the price has gone down and down and down and down. right, okay when in financial markets the price goes to zero why is that happening you're the product and why someone's making money somewhere else in a way that you don't know about so as with all things any market like if I said to Isabella right now I'm gonna buy your iPhone um, I'm gonna buy 10 iPhones off you you've got one on the table in front of you right you could give that to me now but you could sit short nine because you in your mind are like, I know a guy who can get me them cheap. Yeah. Or you might think, oh my God, there's a recession coming, I'm going to be short the price of iPhones. And so my act of taking iPhones off Isabella and you agreeing to it, you have you have created a proprietary risk. Yes. That you didn't need to reveal to me. No. Or anybody. Yeah. And so that is really what gets to me about this stuff, is there are hidden risks.
0: 100%. And I, I, I think... What's fascinating about the market structure is the the prevalence of indexing in general and how the, the cash flows are obscu- a potentially obscuring price discovery, I think. Yes. Because you have this automate... Like, I mean, echoing what you were saying about the gamma traders to some degree, there's this, like, eternal ETF flow where it's just arbitrage. And I wonder if it works in a similar way to your gamma point where, like you will only really discover the price when those ETF arbitrageurs move away
1: yeah Um, totally it's the same kind of mechanism yeah Delta One trading is what it is it's derivative trading and for me
0: what I found fascinating about Delta One is how if you try to find anything out about it you usually just find my article yeah and I am not the definitive I mean I'm That's the weird thing. It's weird. It's it's weird when I Google something, looking for something, and I find my own article. Yeah. yeah. I'm Like, why has no one written more about Delta One? It's fascinating. And
1: it's big, and people take massive risks. Massive risks. Massive risks.
0: And nobody talks about
1: it. If you speak to PRs, they're like, "Oh, we don't, we don't talk about, you know, we don't." Yeah. And and to be fair, I do think a lot of Delta One traits. So Delta One is so called because it's like this.
2: Oh, oh, everything oh. was fine we're getting
1: nice. asked how our we're getting was. our um, coffees but yes. thank you we're all good no, we're, gonna, we,
0: we, we're at the limits of our Time. of our timings Time. But, but we really
1: enjoyed the thank sushi you. it was very it was good great. yeah very very nice actually
0: thank, thank you actually really thanks nice. for letting me have that last bit of sushi well. no no I um, it was, I, was, I was overly greedy and had some too but I I do like sushi but yeah I think but yeah I'm just saying you know
1: Delta One is effectively saying um it's like so isabel has an iphone the value of her iphone goes up and down based on price of iphones and i can i can mirror that in a derivative where i also am exposed to the price of that iphone and that's like delta one i mean it's a very i mean the best what, I, what
0: i think is a uh, work
1: because nowadays
0: crypto is reinventing everything right yeah and actually sometimes it's easier to put it in crypto terms and i i think delta huh. one is like a Like a stable coin, Mm. because it's just like an ETF is like a stable coin. Instead of tracking the dollar, it's tracking an index. Yes. Right? And when you stuff that like collateral in there, you know, you want it to like have this Delta One. You want it to peg. Like Delta One is another way of saying peg. It is. You're right. You're right. That's it. um, Yeah. And the the market opportunity for Delta One traders is if they can essentially massage the collateral. So take that, rehypothecate it whilst. You know, so, so, so in theory, it's all backed as one-to-one, but if you can use the funding from that collateral in a way where you get a better return, yeah,
1: that's when you're making the money, and you, you get to keep the difference. Yeah,
0: yeah. so it's and a scale game and a yield game, game.
1: yeah, it encourages risk, exactly. And it
0: encourages, um, but it, it's essential to give the market the perception, like with Tether and stablecoins, that the collateral is there and because if the market picks up with the fact that there's this risk being taken well then the delta one unwinds yes, the opportunity the unwinds. Thing, yeah
1: and, yeah, and unwinds really, really, really bad. badly yes cause it's usually done in massive scale to try and yeah, clip the
0: extra, teeny tiny the little margins, margins yeah. at a giant yeah. leveraged scale um but I would love I mean I would love to get into the weeds of it and really under, like speak to some Delta One trade but it's funny how like a lot of Delta One traders have ended up being on the kind of wrong side of the market when they blow up like um, yeah. but also um, in crypto like mm. a lot of former delta one traders
1: are they like, they got into crypto How yeah. oh, interesting that makes sense
0: because it all makes sense because it's very much about pegging and keeping collateral you know and then in the, and crypto has then created synthetic etf like effectively the equivalent synthetic synthetic
1: stable coins I yeah mean, yeah it um, has and I, I i mean a lot of people about will say about etfs oh they have survived their biggest test because of what happened in march april 2020 mm. so if you remember of course mm. Of course, right, with a massive world recession, 20% cut to GDP, of course businesses were going to go bust in the end of March 2020. So you couldn't sell the bonds no. because no one was going to buy them off you, so you sold the ETFs. Yeah. And then you got that big discount, which ETF supporters will say, it's great because you had price discovery. isn't that brilliant? Because suddenly everyone knew that bonds should, uh, you know, were worth far, worth far less for these dreadful companies that could do no business. And then the Fed comes in just for Easter 2020 and says, we will buy ETFs, which was the most astonishing. That, to me, is the single most important intervention that they made.
0: Absolutely. And
1: um, I
0: think if they had not done that, there could have been repercussions in the big asset
1: manager names. Totally. Totally agree. Totally agree. And And what they then did, and of course, they didn't start physically buying for a few weeks after that. But of course, the Fed coming in saying it will buy, if you're short you just have to scramble to cover. So you had this, you had a short squeeze like yeah. Volkswagen, Porsche in 2008, like yeah, any, yeah, like, like GameStop, like yeah. any short squeeze you've ever seen in the world, but it was like a massive, a, a massive, massive short squeeze. Because a whole bunch of people had okay. borrowed to short and they suddenly thought, oh my God, you know, now yeah. I'm gonna be massively offside. I'm gonna scramble to buy back. So you saw that some of these ETFs trade from like 300 basis point discounts to 300 yeah. basis point premiums yes. overnight. Yeah. So it, it sort of worked, I mean, it, it was to me, if I'm brutally honest, it was, yeah, it was the most manipulated short squeeze ever. And it was a great confidence trick to pull. It could work again. Those powers have now expired. Those section thirteen three powers have expired. So if they wanted to do it again, they you'd would have, have to, to get it. Congress yeah. to yeah. allow it, which, you know, may not be as straightforward as it was in April 2020. Because, yeah, you'd have to have like a COVID style or Russia stacking. Yeah, and it would but something. you'd have to have bipartisan agreement yeah. that yeah. that was think, the way to deal with it. Um, and so, so yeah, they, well, to me they didn't survive their greatest test, they proved that they were an accelerator of panic, and it just so happened that they then were an accelerator of the reversal and Yeah, the because that is
0: what they do, they are, I think, um, they're amplifiers. Yes, they're amplifiers. Of whatever the
1: swing is. So if it's down to market, it will amplify that way and vice versa. Which takes us back to, it's just like gamma. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. So, the, yeah, those things are like they're long gamma until they're not and then they're suddenly short.
0: And then there's that weird phenomenon where, like, they always grow in a down market oh, or ma-
1: contract in an up market. Isabella, you have to talk about that sometime. I mean, you've written about it and people, please read about this, okay? When you look at the AUM of an ETF, you need to be aware there is something called create to lend. The authorised participant can create a share and, and sell it on to somebody. Yeah. Right? So it doesn't. the, the, the amount looks like it's gone up. Yeah.
0: But creation units
1: but it has so look at SPY in October 2008 so it went up in scale when everybody was coming out of it
0: it's like, it's like a it's like a phantom share situation um, yeah I mean these I mean th- these are all fascinating things but now that yeah. we're on our coffees yeah. um, I want to ask you just very quick fi- not quick fire and if you don't feel comfortable like making projection don't just say no but I'm just interested, like, in a number of quick things.
1: So what, what do you think of the midterms in the US? The Republicans are going to win the House and probably the Senate. In the last two years, the Biden administration, assuming he survives, literally, are going to be even more policy gridlock and uh, bad blood than we have seen. And I'm pretty sure this is all setting up for Trump 2024.
0: Oh, so you think he'll be back
1: Okay. And, um, and would you win? Probably. Really? I and should say one of our interns um, has worked for the Democratic Party, um, again, in our goal to be inclusive mm. of different positions. And he, he said that the most, he's been over there, he went over recently actually to Florida and he said that the, the, the problem the Democrats often have is they are not a very good election campaigning machine. Mm. They, in fact, when we looked at Georgia as the Senate seat when we were predicting the last two seats, so we, we looked at how uh, Republican that seat was, and it had been moving demographically much more towards the Democrats for years, since Obama onwards, but they had it took until last time around for them to actually win it. Fascinating. That, Yeah, I didn't
0: know that. So, anyway. Um, closer to home, if, how secure is Johnson? He'll you? be gone by the end of the year, as we'll wish you snack. Really, and who do you think is the
1: um, successor? Who are the
0: candidates in the? Well, I think
1: I think it probably will be Jeremy Hunt, but we're obviously going to get a bid from Liz Truss as the as the Brexiteer. Um, Rishi will try, but his I think his ship has sailed. Situation, yeah. Um, And the reason for Hunt is that. What, in this world we've just talked about, where the electorate's fragmenting and believing in many different things, authoritarian, libertarian, left, right, etc., the one thing people do want, particularly with the state being bigger, is a competent leader. And Hunt at least can try and claim he's one of the most competent people in the Conservative Party. And he, um, he did win a third of membership votes last time around. You know, at a time when you, you might have argued, oh, the Conservative Party membership's very pro-Brexit, you know, a third of them voted for Jeremy Hunt last time. Yeah, that's true.
0: Where's the political risk in Europe? What are we not Oh, God, enough? well,
1: I mean, it's 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 a total because of what I would call a vote for none of the above, because no one can capture this sort of majority of, of the populace, which we've obviously seen in these French legislative mm-hmm. elections, so Macron is... Lame duck. Can't do anything, total lame duck. Um, but Schultz is also in the... It, Schultz is actually probably the the best politician for that job. I mean the greens are very important in germany, Robert Habeck is becoming more and more important. And then the FDP under Christian Lindner, I mean I was astonished he joined that coalition and I think he will either he will break or his party will because they're going to have to sign up to more government spending and that is literally anathema to the point of that party. So I think um I think we will I think we will see Germany continue to sort of be the leader of Europe, but the problem for Scholz is he's got to manage his own party and the Greens and the FDP. And he's doing okay, actually, but it just means it's hard to make decisions. It looks messy. It looks indecisive from the outside. And, of course, right now with basically a war in Europe, that's exactly what you don't need. I mean, the smartest thing Putin did was act at a point when all of his opponents were politically very weak.
0: Yes, I mean, you've got to... You've got to, I don't like giving him credit. No, his, no, you he's can see what you can he's see, and, 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 and there's no doubt. Taking yes, taking
1: advantage. Of yes, now what can defeat that is that a united West can definitely defeat him, but he's banking on there being enough domestic problems that joint foreign policy is going to be difficult.
0: So that's my last sort of outlook question. What, how do you see the Russia
1: relations like from now on, next six
0: months? Oh on? well, this
1: war is here. This war both land war in Ukraine, but the protracted economic war will go on for years. We should be prepared for that.
0: So do you think that even if there's some sort of, like,
1: negotiated resolution, sanctions will stay? Correct. Because the West... Now, it surprised me as much as anybody, but the West, make no mistake, are throwing Russia out of the financial system. They are engineering a Lehman's on a country scale. Yeah. Now, you might think that's right or wrong or madness or great or, you know, you have to bring this guy to justice but now we've started on the track we can't really we can't U-turn stop anymore. and i don't well from my discussion with various politicians they don't actually want that to stop they want they want to bring that economy to its knees and the only way to do that is well we're all going to get poorer but is is there a risk that russia can withstand the economic pain uh yes which is why this is going to go on and on and on and, on. and what gonna- about china well, China, I mean, I'm, I'm not a China expert. Uh, my sense is that they, that the Russia thing has, it's good and bad for them, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, at the end of the day, you know, the, the probably their bigger problem is, is it COVID and supply chains and a global recession. And a global recession is not great for China as the sort of workshop of the world. So... One thing I was always told by sort of China economists years ago is that you know, the thing you have to understand about China is they don't want utter economic disaster because then that would ferment social unrest. They don't want amazing economic growth because then that exacerbates inequalities between the rich and the poor, which also creates social unrest. So they want this weird massaged middle ground. So that's why I, if the world is going to be as volatile both politically and economically as I expect, you sort of might see China flip in a way that looks irrational from veering off in one direction to be chummy with Russia but then veering back in the other direction to want to ensure economic ties remain with the West so I'm not sure and,
0: and here's my um, sweeper question which is the concluding question uh, what, what else is on the radar? it's, it's the traditional journalistic sweeper it's like what, what, have I not, what have we not mentioned that we should be mentioning
1: have we mentioned revolution? oh just just revolution <laughs> just that old riots, riot riots. yeah domestically domestic violence yes well in, in the west definitely in the uk I mean, we had those london remember london looting that went on in yes. 2011 yes, kind of weirdly out of nowhere it felt like yeah. at the time because we kind of come out of the economic yeah. so here's another thing someone told to me in politics which is it's not the downturn that causes the problems it's the upturn it's the recovery because it's always uneven that's when the inequalities are exposed that's when people feel most perturbed we're all in it together when the shit hits the fan but after that the people with a better safety net do better The what you know the rich get richer than the poor get poorer so so i mean if i look at this historically we should all stand i mean we should we should stand back and say look we have had a massive global pandemic that caused the world to shut down The world to shut down. Let us not underestimate both economically and politically what that means, what we have all gone through. And a war, right? Big economic change always leads to big social change. Always. Massive dislocation of political systems. I remember people, do you not remember people talking about this after 08, 09? They were like, oh my God, Hitler in the 1930s. I mean, look, I'm not saying we're going to get another Hitler, but we are going to get radically new and different politics out of this and it's going to be a damn bumpy ride for a decade afterwards and we should not be surprised by that so basically to conclude <laughs> with something that something is coming it's the old yes. normal
0: is gone gone and Get we can't it. necessarily put our finger on what's coming
1: but you can expect it to be very different to what... I think you can put no I think you can put something of a finger on what's coming it is a more virtual world even if we don't like it even if it feels odd the virtual world the online shopping the metaverse the virtual interactions the way we do you know leisure is coming and the politicians that we're going to get
0: although in in a in a kind of power cut world the metaverse doesn't do that
1: well oh you mean if you have like a Winter just with a proper like yeah. cutting of. Um, well, we, because that's the difference well, between
0: lockdown and a potential energy, um, d- like d- down period. Because you mean lock, like black
1: brownouts and blackouts?
0: Yeah, because in, in lockdown we're all happy, relatively. Like, yeah, lots of yeah, yeah. Like God, lockdown, if that happened twenty
1: years ago, can you
0: imagine? But if
1: you are yes. at
0: home and you're having to deal with
1: like power cuts and be at home, yeah, like, well two words solar panels you know my partner's a massive prepper but the preppers this is their time Preppers, they they were right solar panels um batteries
0: yeah you know have a tesla or an
1: electric car because it has a battery in it which is going to be useful for you you know two-way radios you've talked to me about the radios oh no i like the two-way you need the proper like and i'm Look, I'm not that sort of person, she's, I mean, like, I laughed at my partner when he talks about his prepper stuff. I mean, when we went into lockdown, we already had 100 toilet rolls and 100 <laughs> cans of soup, because that's his standard. This is becoming a theme of Leak lunch because we did discover oh, really? the giant bags of rice that Dan
0: bought, or I bought, I can't remember, he bought something but, ridiculous but, as well. But,
1: but we're in a, we're, But make no mistake, we are in a more inefficient world. Supply chains are completely broken and recreated. We've had a global no-deal Brexit. Well, prepping is just decentralised warehousing. Correct. There you go. Exa- Exactly. Decentralised, decentralised warehousing.
0: warehousing.
1: <laughs> That's what should be prepared. For.
0: It's the same concept as, like, Bitcoin, like, warehousing. Well, it's on onto something. Internet.
1: It is on something, this yeah. technology. But, yeah. Like, as
0: in, like... You don't need these giant server farms. Everyone can like,
1: yeah, no, I, I decentralised warehouse. I mean, you've even that. seeing like communities chip in to do their own broadband lines. You know, I mean, like security of security is premium now, and supplies. I think we've under
0: we've underpriced security for too long. Just yeah. And now imagine, we have to, like, just
1: imagine. Even when yeah. we were young in the nineteen eighties, if you had said yeah. how easily, any time in the yeah. year, you could get strawberries, no, no. you could fly around the world, you could order a taxi yeah. and farm your hand. I mean. We will look back at that period as this kind of somewhat mad kind of uh, luxury period. Yeah, lu- a luxury period. So yeah. now we're just going into normal. Like we're well, basically going
0: back to sort of a, a previous norm to some degree. Well,
1: it's it's it, no, it's just more of a o- onshoring or a yeah right, Frenchshoring, whatever they're calling but it. it. But it's but uh, but uh, I, well, we had a very. Let's put it this way: we've all had a very comfortable life. It is now going to get a lot more uncomfortable. But that I, I this is why I'm not a pessimist. I don't think that's a bad thing. A bit of resilience is not exactly, bad. exactly exactly. Maybe then we went a little bit too precise. Um, we got a little bit flabby. We we got a bit too thinly spread. As we said. got a bit Hunger Games in the capital.
0: <laughs> well, listen, Helen. Thank you so much for joining me on this uh, extended uh, leaked lunch. Sorry. Yes. No. No. Said. No. It was great. I Drop really it, enjoyed cuts it. it. Cuts it.
1: Um, thank and, you, yeah, Isabella. And I'm sure we'll meet again. Yes. And we'd love to hear your. Well, I would love to hear your feedback. Yeah. Because I'm always keen to hear what people think. Everybody get in touch with Helen. All the details will be in the podcast.
0: That was Leaked Lunch with Isabella Kaminska, brought to you in association with Hire, the pseudonymous messaging app that won't share your personal information unless the law demands it. For more on what happens when finance and media intersect with reality, check out The Blind Spot at wwwthe